This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. My family thinks I'm crazy. Podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, tell your whole podcast. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? Is it possible a more shadowy and secretive society exists behind the scenes in the United States, deeper and more powerful than the Freemasons? Could our founding fathers paid their allegiance to a more arcane group? Today's guest is a parapolitical researcher and author who has done extensive investigations into the hidden history of secret societies here in the United States. And they have proved to play a larger role in history than we're told. Steven Snyder, host of The Farm Mach 2, joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Fix Some Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode with Steven Snyder. Washington and Jefferson. I mean, they kind of tried to play nice in their letters and stuff, but they really, really did not like each other. And they really had these competing visions for America. And you saw them setting up, you know, respectively in the different territories that they covered. I mean, Washington and the Cincinnati wanted the Northwestern stuff. And then Jefferson and his crowd wanted the lands beyond and Louisiana Purchase and all this other kind of stuff. And basically, Washington and people like Alexander Hamilton used the regions that they had to establish what is now generally referred to as the American system. This is what, you know, really fueled the Industrial Revolution in the country. And I don't think it's a coincidence that you look at the industrial heartland of this country, it's pretty much all in the areas the Society of Cincinnati founded. Now, Jefferson, by contrast, really wanted this kind of agrarian society. I mean, really also kind of a slaveocracy as well. That was a major dispute 
uh, between them. I mean, certainly the Society of Cincinnati members were very opposed to uh, slavery. They very much did envision a kind of multicultural society taking place with Native Americans and freed slaves and colonists and what would effectively be quasi-military dictatorships to ensure that there was a well-mannered order between the uh, different factions. And then obviously Jefferson wanted to kind of continue the slave system. And, you know, again, it's it's really interesting. I mean, if Jefferson's vision had prevailed, it's possible America would have really remained a third world. I mean, we would have essentially continued supplying a lot of raw materials to the European powers where their factories would have, you know, ultimately turned them into the manufactured goods. Whereas Hamilton and Washington and a lot of the people around Cincinnati very much wanted to bring that here. Here we are, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And I am here with someone who I've heard on several different podcasts. We've had Nathan Isaac here before, and this gentleman played a big role in one of my favorite podcasts, The Penny Royal. His research was very important in the narrative, and it's a pleasure to have him here. Steven Snyder, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Oh, thanks for having me on, man. And I should not forget to mention, he has his own podcast called The Farm. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. You, you just joined up with Alt Media United, so we got a page for you on our site now, and it's a pleasure to have you. Yeah, no, it's good to be on. I've heard a bit about you too from our mutual friend, Nathan Lee. I spent a bit of time with him in Cancun. I thought that was cool too. I guess you just had Chris Knowles on. I kind of consider Chris to be like a mentor, so that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, he's great. Chris is great. Nathan mm -hmm. Lee is is my favorite new friend that i've met so it's good to see you you and him hanging out he's a good dude yeah yeah and no, i just had nathan actually down here uh, to stay with me at my cabin in west virginia i got like you'll probably actually find this interesting i live on land that was originally owned by lord halifax and then it was uh, sold to george washington's personal physician george washington was actually the one who surveyed the land wow and the physician was the one who initiated uh, washington into the masonic lodges too so it was a bit of a piece of history here i took nathan there's a ghost town actually just a couple of blocks from my cabin and took Nathan Lee down there uh, as he plays guitar and what have you. So kind of like right in that whole sort of area of some of the families we'll probably be discussing today. But I got into doing the farm a couple of years ago with my former co-host, Frank Zero, who was actually the one who had founded it. And then I kind of took it over around like 2020 or so. Frank went to do some different projects. But yeah, you know, it's been a lot of fun. It kind of covers a lot of my different obsessions with parapolitics and the occult and pop culture, synchro mysticism. I've been told that we cover a pretty wide range of topics. So here's hoping I try to mix it up and keep it interesting as much as possible so i love it but, yeah i i'm very familiar with some of the research i've heard you on several shows as i've mentioned and yeah it's it's really interesting you know the the perspective that we all share is connected through synchro mysticism like each of us pick up a different role or purpose kind of like 
you know, piece out different pieces of the puzzle. And then, you know, we put them all together and it becomes this collaborative effort. And, you know, not everybody's work is equal, but I think yours stands out as very detailed, very meticulous. And I'm looking forward to getting into what we're planning on discussing because it's come up on this show before. We spent a lot of time talking about mounds and the ancient history here in America. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I was told that the order of the Cincinnatus was involved with the possibly gridding some of these mounds, which Ross Ben writes in his book that there's, you know, this whole science of taking apart a mound and then rebuilding over it. And, and there might be maybe more than one order of Cincinnatus, but it is interesting. Like the first time I heard this was through Ross Ben. And then I heard you talking about them as well. And I know there's a sort of civil or I'm sorry, revolutionary war order of Cincinnatus, but then there's a sort of behind the front, you know, exoteric version where it's like uh, possibly connected to Roman mystery schools or, or some occult order. So, you know, me, I don't know. Those are just a whole bunch of ideas, not really connected. I'd love to know where we should start when we begin to or, like understand this order of Cincinnatus. Well, the whole thing with the mounds is very much true. And that was kind of an obsession that probably went with George Washington himself. I mean, Washington was actually quite a surveyor and uh, had investigated quite a few of the mounds in the Ohio Valley. I think it was like in the 1760s, you know, like kind of between the French Indian War, like between that and then the American Revolution. And uh, several other members, too, were really obsessed with this. And it's fascinating because... They did a lot in the aftermath of the revolution to lobby for the creation of the Northwestern Territory, which is encompassing now would be modern day Ohio Valley and the Great Lakes region. And that just happens to be where I think there was the largest concentration of mounds like in the entire country. I mean, southern Wisconsin alone had something like 20,000 of them or something to that effect. The Ohio Valley was well washed with them as well. So, I mean, they were everywhere in these sort of territories that the Cincinnati covered. And uh, they actually founded the first preservation society for the indigenous mounds in Marietta, which was a major, I think it was like a Hopewell complex before they had started to settle there. Unfortunately, they were not able to hold on to them. A lot of them were ultimately destroyed, but that was definitely an ongoing obsession of theirs. And it's... It's really interesting. One of the members of this society was Vente, you know, the architect, the French architect who was behind a lot of the sacred geometry in the nation's capital. He had done these plans in like 1780 or something, but he was one of the big people who contributed along with George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and gosh, I can't remember the one other guy. But Jefferson was also quite obsessed with the mounds as well, and certainly Washington and Fente were as well. And it's, I'm still kind of developing this, but it's one of my theories that I think... Lafente and Washington may have actually incorporated some of like the sacred geometry from the Hopo and the Adena Mountains into the nation's capital because they have been studying this stuff for years before they set up the blueprints for the capital. So I think they already kind of had an understanding of where the points of power were in certain regions of the United States when they were putting this together. So in answer to your question, yes, there was very much this esoteric component to it. And I think it did really manifest itself 
in this obsession that they clearly had with sacred geometry. And then, of course, there was kind of this rivalry they had sort of ongoing, I would say, with Thomas Jefferson and his faction, too, who also had this same sort of interest. Wow, that's fascinating to hear it in that way, because I know another researcher, Court Lindahl, talks about Thomas Jefferson and his interest in octagonal architecture and and how there's this sort of science of i think they call it the the eight directions of the wind or something to that degree and they would build these octagonal buildings in alignment one with one another it's very easy to align an octagonal building with another just because there's so many you know sides to it but yeah what was the faction that jefferson was a part of did it have a name was he part of a different order that's less known yeah well i mean we can get into that in a little bit but i mean it was kind of like the democratic republican faction and it's just it's really fascinating because especially like the personal rivalry between washington and jefferson i mean they kind of tried to play nice in their letters and stuff but they really really did not like each other and they really had these competing visions for America. And you saw them setting up, you know, respectively in the different territories that they covered. I mean, Washington and the Cincinnati wanted the Northwestern stuff. And then Jefferson and his crowd wanted the lands beyond and Louisiana Purchase and all this other kind of stuff. And basically, Washington and people like Alexander Hamilton use the regions that they had to establish what is now generally referred to as the American system. This is what, you know, really fueled the industrial revolution in the country. And I don't think it's a coincidence that you look at the industrial heartland of this country, it's pretty much all in the areas the Society of Cincinnati founded. Now, Jefferson, by contrast, really wanted this kind of agrarian society. I mean, really also kind of a slaveocracy as well. That was a major dispute between them. I mean, certainly the Society of Cincinnati members were very opposed to slavery. They very much did envision a kind of multicultural society taking place with Native Americans and freed slaves and colonists and what would effectively be quasi-military dictatorships to ensure that there was a well-mannered order between the uh, different factions. And then obviously Jefferson wanted to kind of continue the slave system. And, you know, again, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, if Jefferson's vision had prevailed, you know, it's possible America would have really remained a third world. I mean, we would have essentially continued supplying a lot of raw materials to the European powers where their factories would have, you know, ultimately turned them into the manufactured goods. Whereas Hamilton and Washington and a lot of the people around Cincinnati very much wanted to bring that here. And, you know, again, there was a lot of tragedy with that as well. I mean, it led to just, you know, tremendous labor struggle in the late 19th, early 20th century and the emergence of the company town and a host of other ways to exploit and oppress people besides what Jefferson had envisioned in his kind of countering vision. But, you know, I'm sure you're kind of familiar with some of the stuff too with Mark Frost and some of the things with Twin Peaks appended. Fascinating how he sort of incorporated, I think, some of this into like the books that he had recently written with the tie-ins to the new season. Another families, two families that were close to Jefferson's faction were the Lewis and the Merriweather families. And they eventually combined and produced Merriweather Lewis and Lewis and Clark family. So these were kind of like another group working with Jefferson, you know, in their own sort of projects over there. But it's just, it's just so fascinating where, you know, at the heart of this, you've got these competing visions of America, these different political parties trying to push them through the Federalists, Democratic Republicans. 
And then you kind of have these secret orders beneath them also with these different visions as well. And it is a very Twin Peaksy thing, you know, kind of the stuff, the sort of hidden history that Mark Frost alluded to in some of these books. So yeah, props to him. Mm, yeah. And I'm unfortunately not familiar with, uh, with his work. I have watched Twin Peaks and I know Nathan Lee told me a whole bunch about that. So maybe that might be what you're referencing but uh, uh yeah yeah okay, but, okay but yeah no i i you know unfortunately my recall is is getting sharper and sharper by the day but not sharp enough to remember everything so yeah i i'm interested in looking into his work because you know i've only seen what has made its way to the screen and i know books often yield more but when you talk about these competing visions i do see exactly what you're saying i mean it is it does feel like we've been dejected from that in certain places hence the the rust belt and things being taken to you know the digital phase of in industry you know it's seems like that washington tonian vision is is gone but in some ways not because they have really ingrained themselves in the psyche of america but when when this was going on in the revolution, I mean, surveying wasn't just the, the, the tip of the iceberg. That's not all they were doing. I mean, what were some of the practices that the occult order of the Cincinnati, you know, was it just meetings and planning and government type stuff? Or were they doing what we might deem occult rituals or, or divination or other, you know, techniques that people might not know about? I mean, I, you know, again, I speculate that there might have been some of this stuff. Like I said, they were clearly studying the mounds. I mean, maybe picking up on some of the rituals there. I mean, obviously, a lot of these guys were big, you know, Greco-Roman history buffs. I mean, I think that they probably would have studied some of the Mithraid mysteries as well. And then another, you know, kind of interesting aspect of this as well is the French, the French wing of the Order of Cincinnati. I mean, virtually all... Of the French members were members of the, the Knights of Malta, like the official Knights of Malta, the ones that traced their lineage all the way back to the Knights Hospital Tower. They were the Knights of Rhodes and so forth. And when this alliance had started, too, this was around a time where, you know, they the Knights of Malta themselves were getting into some weird stuff. I mean, Pinto had recently died, but he was the grand master who was supposedly Cagliostro's a cold mentor and it helped show him the Egyptian rite and all this other stuff he had embarked upon all of these building projects in Malta and then Rohan had taken over I think in 1775 and quite a few of the Knights of Malta had come to the United States to fight as mercenaries under Washington during the Revolutionary War and these were the same ones who were brought into the Order of Cincinnati so you know, you're talking about a group there that had been around since the Crusades. They had been in the Holy Lands. They had taken over a lot of the Templar stuff after, you know, the suppression and what have you. So they probably knew a thing or two about a thing or two. And these were, I mean, again, the same kind of people that they were interacting with. You know, unfortunately, there hasn't been a lot of research, you know, done at this. But I mean, just going into the Society of Cincinnati's headquarters in Washington, D.C. I mean, I keep meaning to put up all my pictures from that. But I mean, it's just 
it's really overwhelming with all the Greco-Roman stuff that they've got in there. And I mean, certainly you kind of see in some of the artwork, the references to Pan and sort of like the wild hunt and what have you. I definitely very much get a sense that there was this ritualistic aspect. But again, sadly, this just isn't something that people really investigated. And uh, this wasn't the kind of stuff that the founding fathers were putting in their notebooks. Again, you know, a lot of them were very conscious of themselves as public figures. So it's not going to be like, yeah, you know, George and LaFont and I went to the underground a cave and sacrificed a bull to Mithras tonight kind of stuff, you know. But certainly, I mean, when you look at, I mean, some of the landmarks and things that left, I mean, it clearly seems like they were aware and uh, probably participating in some of these things. Well, and, and it, it shows in their handiwork that they must be, you know, taking into account these esoteric sciences to even pull off some of these feats. I mean... Now it seems like there's this whole wave of, of people. I, I sometimes think it's a psyop, sometimes not telling us that, oh, all these buildings were here for long, long ago. They're all just Tartarian and we couldn't have built something like that. And I think that's just a little too far fetched for me uh, because we, we know the characters who were around designing uh, the architecture that laid the framework for this civilization that we're now in this society that we're now in but this french faction that has its roots so far back uh are they connected to lafayette because his name and his likeness is found in a lot of interesting places around the country i mean new york city has their own lafayette square there's several different cities named lafayette across the country and i know he was you know sort of esoteric for lack of a more specific term yeah, Lafayette was a part of the French branch as well. I think he was actually one of the few French members who wasn't a member of the Knights of Malta. And um, interestingly, too, another Knight of Malta who was a part of the French faction was uh, the brother of Viscount Mirabeau, I believe that's how it's pronounced, who was one of the principal figures for bringing Illuminati ideology to the French. And I uh, was long suspected of being a member of the Illuminati. Now we're talking about the Aryan Illuminati, right? The German Illuminati. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So, you know, when it comes to the later period after the revolutionary war, like what do we see the order of Cincinnatus like doing? Are there any examples of uh, events that were orchestrated by them or or certain like um, important works that they put together. Obviously, the nation's capital is a big one, but that wasn't pulled off until how many years after the revolution, right? I mean, there's several years that went by before they constructed that, let alone the first White House that was burnt down by the British in the 1800s. So they, they're still around to this day, I assume, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, the first thing would be really the U.S. Constitution itself, which, I mean, probably would have never come to pass. I mean, if it wasn't for some of the intrigues that the Cincinnati were involved in leading up to the Constitutional Convention and specifically Shays' Rebellion, which, I mean, I think in a lot of ways could be seen as really the uh, the first, you know, kind of false flag attack in the nation's history. I mean, obviously, up to this point, the United States was sort of organized under the Articles of Confederation, and there really wasn't 
much of a movement to do a constitutional convention to enshrine a stronger federal government. I mean, most of the states really didn't want to give the federal government the ability to tax or to raise a standing army for a variety of reasons that are you know, now kind of obvious. So anyway, Shay's Rebellion in theory breaks out 1786. And I mean, it scares the hell out of a lot of people. You know, there were a lot of rumors floating around that they were going to march on Boston, they were going to seize control, but and then from there, they were going to start taking over all of New England and have it break away as a republic. And this would cause total anarchy because then the British and European powers would start flooding in and putting the colonies against each other. And eventually we would be back under the British boot and so on and so forth. So... Now everybody's thinking, maybe we do need a strong executive, somebody who can raise an army if something like this happens, and we need a way to fund it. And so the funny thing is about all of this, you know, in the intern, though, to put down Shea's Rebellion, well, who, you know, kind of comes into the bear to do that? Society of Cincinnati, they raise a full-blown militia, they go in, they put the rebellion down. But the other thing about this is that many of the principal people who set up Shays Rebellion were also members of the Society of Cincinnati. In fact, the guy who pretty much like screwed up their attempt to march on the armory, I think Luke Day, he was actually the primary drill master and the one who had raised and trained the army. And then supposedly in the day they were supposed to seize weapons from the Massachusetts army, his communication was like intercepted or something to that effect. So his troops never showed up. And anyway, Daniel Shea goes out there. He's missing like a third of his army. The Society of Cincinnati shows up with this crack militia, you know, because they're all revolutionary war officers that they train. They do battle for like about 20 minutes. Shea's forces are routed and that's the end of that. But it's like basically this whole revolt that they stage, that they put down, that terrifies the nation, that gets this constitutional convention going. They get the constitution they want, and then their boy George Washington gets to be the first president, and then Alexander Hamilton gets to be the secretary of treasury, and this is where the American system starts being enshrined. You get the Bank of the United States, all this other good stuff. Right. So, I mean, so many was, people don't realize that what ten men before Washington took the place of like you know what we could call president before it was officially the United States, right? So George Washington wasn't even really the leader in that sense. He's just the first from this order that kind of made its impression on the history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From like the United kind of federal government with this strength and constitution and all this other stuff. So, I mean, it was really quite a coup for them. And I mean, it had profound implications for the future of the country because, I mean, it really did kind of establish the imperial presidency. And I mean, that's really, I mean, it's kind of ironic because, I mean, the American empire in and of itself was really crafted in Ohio. I mean, from the period of like, I think 1875 to like about 1927 or eight of the U.S. presidents came from the state of Ohio. And I mean, especially guys like McKinley, Taft. I mean, these were the guys who really pushed for, you know, overseas expansion and what have you. 
So it was kind of ironic from the beginning, you know, you had the original Society for Cincinnati who had been at the forefront of really pushing for the colonial territorial expansion of the United States within North America. And then later, it's kind of like their descendants from Ohio took this imperial presidency that they had kind of crafted with the U.S. Constitution and used it to really, you know, turn us into a full-blown overseas empire as well. So, I mean... This was like something that really has just been playing out, you know, for centuries now in this country that people don't realize. Mm, no, absolutely. And even the name, and I like that you called it the Imperial Empire or Imperial Government because Cincinnatus, that's a, a Roman term for city with seven hills, right? And I wonder if that plays into their interest in mounds, right? This idea that maybe they're connecting with their ancient origins, this race of people that built megalithic structures from, you know, all the way down in Mexico up through New England into the, you know, North Atlantic and across into Northern Europe. There seems to be a sort of pattern of ancient cultures, or at least they were trading with one another. So it's always been a suspicion of mine. I mean, I remember having a friend that told me that, oh, Columbus wasn't the first to come to America. And that really like took my you know worldview and flipped it upside down and i really started to think about that and what that could mean and and you know the idea that we have the district of columbia and we're told that columbus was the first one to come here i mean what what is that all about i mean who is the the goddess columbia and why is she so important to this group to for them to name their their headquarters district of columbia well i mean i don't really know specifically what the goddess herself but in terms of just like I, it's really just fascinating you sort of make that point as well because i mean dc and cincinnati are actually on the same parallel this was something that Michael Hoffman got into in his most recent book, Twilight Language of the 39th Parallel. I think he dubbed that the hard line parallel. But to my mind, it's more of the imperial parallel because, I mean, it goes right through D.C., on through Cincinnati, up through like Salt Lake City, which is another, you know, kind of big imperial forefront for Mormonism and so forth, all the way through Colorado, where you have Aurora and a lot of this other stuff, and specifically Denver. I think then finally ending, gosh, somewhere in Southern California with some significance but i mean yeah you definitely see just this weird i mean almost ritualistic i mean placement of these different cities and so forth and i've noticed that with a lot of these parallels the 37th the 39th the 42nd there really does seem to have been a deliberate attempt to harness the different energies of some of these regions. It's you know, really quite fascinating. In terms of like Cincinnati itself, though, uh, you got to remember that it was actually named after the Roman general Cincinnati, not after the city. But I mean, yeah, it is you know kind of fascinating how in the case of both Cincinnati, the city and, you know, D.C., there was very much this attempt, I think, to recreate this whole Roman sensibility there. I mean... Having been to both, I would say that definitely Cincinnati is the most Roman city in the country outside of D.C. in terms of just the the architecture and so on and so forth. But again, you know, when you look at just the sort of obsession that they had with this kind of thing, I mean, that's not hardly surprising that it would be enshrined so much. And, uh, you know, its house was named after this particular order. Right, right, right. And then we have plenty of examples of other toponym 
parallels, right? These places that just, you know, are in the middle of nowhere and then their name Rome for some reason. And, the, you know, the town has one gas station, but somehow they're comparing it to the Colosseum and, and all the beauty that is Rome. But it is interesting. You know, we have this, you know, what seems like if we take like a couple steps back and look at the larger picture, it seems like there is a, you know, contingency of government that has existed across cultures and whether it's just through inspiration and they're paying homage and reflecting the symbolism of something they were inspired by to us in this paranoid community it's easy to start to think like oh well that's because there's you know a roman cult and they've been in power for thousands of years do you think it's that simple or, or do you think this is more like just a uh, window dressing for them to sort of gain the energy that they're trying to acquire? Well, I mean, it's, you know, again, it just, it's really fascinating how so many of these groups did fixate on these mounds and then I mean, we did try to set up, you know, different structures around them. Again, I mean, I, you know, I was kind of thinking, I mean, the Mormons would be another one you could throw in there too. I mean, Joseph Smith more or less tried to <laughs> create an entire cosmology around these freaking things, you know? So there was... Yeah, I mean, it is really interesting that, I mean, there did become such an obsession with these holy spots. And I mean, it does kind of make you wonder, well, why were these different groups flocking out across the country and trying to build, you know, their own sort of shrines and what have you over these places, even when they were out of the way and they were picking all of these names from the ancient world and so on and so forth. You know, this is something that I've always kind of gone back and forth on. Over the course of my life, you know, because I mean, on the one hand, it does sort of seem ridiculous that, you know, you would have some of these cults that could have persisted, you know, I mean, since the time of ancient Rome. But I mean, after reading some of the stuff like the great Peter Mark Adams on the game of Saturn, I mean, it really does make an interesting argument that there had been this Saturnine cult, this kind of Neoplatonic cult that had potentially survived in the Byzantine, so-called Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, and then kind of later returned to the West around the Renaissance and beginning, you know, with the Florentine and Venetian nobility, it gradually spread to London and Paris and a lot of these other different spots. I mean, again, it is interesting, you know, and this is, I do think, related because when you look at... At least, you know, what we've been told the practices that the Adina and Hopewell are, it does seem that they also were very much engaged in, you know, from European sensibilities, what we would think of as theurgy. I mean, specifically, they found a lot of obsidian mirrors in these mounds. And there's evidence that, you know, psychedelics, especially magic mushrooms, were used. And then they also smoked a particular grade of tobacco that potentially could have caused hallucinations. So it's very interesting how with these mound structures, I mean, they really do seem to parallel some of the traditions, you know, that were present in, you know, kind of Neoplatonism and some of these other European traditions, which I think is another reason why these different groups were so obsessed with them, because they could see what, you know, these groups like the Adina and the Hopewell were using them for. And it was very similar to their own traditions. You know, again, when you look at something like Serpent Mound, I mean, it's very closely aligned to various stellar phenomenons of the Solistes and things like that. And I mean, just being there and the setup. It's also interesting, too, a lot of people don't realize this, but it's located right in the midst of a meteoric crater as well. And it's very strange. It's just this elevated thing that looks like it was almost pulled up, you know, like out of the ground, you know, and then you've got this you know, giant serpent that's only really visible from the sky there. 
And, you know, again, the different points in the coils or lines, various listings, equinoxes, other kinds of interstellar phenomenon. You look at these different you know, spots on there, it's easy to imagine that this is where the shaman would have probably taken the people out. They would have done their, you know, kind of theurgic work there, especially during significant times and probably for you know, reasons that were similar to what were being done in Europe to either ascend, you know, through to the stars or to draw something down into them. So, again, yeah. if these kind of cults did survive within some of the European elites, and again, this is especially, I think, a good possibility with some of those Boston families. And they also explain why they were so interested in these mound complexes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And not to mention all the artifacts that have been smuggled away from uh, a lot of these sites, especially the ones that were destroyed. I mean, uh, I know I mentioned earlier my interest in skull and bones, but they have, you know, big collection of artifacts in several different art galleries and museums on their campus. And they're just one of many of these groups of, you know, research, you know, groups or preservation groups that go along. And I sort of think it's like, taking a battery out of its device like these artifacts whatever they're made out of are are connecting to the energy of the earth in that mound and you sort of disengage them from the magnetic connection when you remove them and and maybe add power to wherever that museum is built or wherever that art gallery is built it it definitely seems like there's some sort of science to like grave robbing or mound robbing well, that's one possible explanation for the mountains. Another possible explanation is that they were actually the sites of genocide, that the bodies and the cultures have been covered up, and that they, some of the stuff that has come out that I was just telling you about has been perpetuated to sort of enshrine this notion of the perennial tradition and so forth. So... <laughs> which kind of seems to be an ongoing project as we go into the present day. Yeah. It's another fascinating thing. I mean, you see this a lot now with like, you know, um, uh, a lot of like the uh, Mexican, you know, like the Mayan and the Aztec stuff. But again, you know, they come upon these like mountains, you know, in Mexico, right, which people have thought have been a mountain for decades and they start digging into them. And it turns out that there's like an entire city there that the, the Spanish covered up after they had killed everybody in there. So... It's also possible that this has been rewritten to perpetuate a certain narrative about the history of this country as well, which again is something other groups like the Mormons and what have you have a vested interest in as well. So this is another and more unsettling possibility as to why there was this obsession with going out and capturing these sites to array, to capture these points of power and erase the indigenous traditions in front of them and to put these European traditions on top of them. Yeah. Wow. And how far back do you think this plan, because we've suggested throughout this conversation, or at least I have the, the possibility that, you know, well, again, this is very much a Roman thing, right? I mean, what did the Romans do after they defeated the Carthaginians for the third time? They destroyed the entire city, and, and was the legend has it, they poured salt over it so nothing would grow there. They basically destroyed the entire Phoenician culture so that there was nothing left of it. Romans had a lot of experience in doing that by that point in time, too, be assured. 
what was the unofficial motto of the empire? Uh, let them hate us so long as they fear us, I believe. Right. Right. And yeah, we see the British Isles suffering that, the Druid culture being wiped out and sort of subsumed. And some of that stuff seems to have, you know, it existed beyond the suppression that took place. There's still like a folklore that exists there, even though it's been altered. And I think the same is true here, where they alter it just enough to keep it out of sight and and only the select, unique, curious minds go and seek out those answers. But yeah, I mean, that is definitely a dark and unsettling explanation for the mounds. I hadn't quite thought of them as, you know, genocidal markers and well it's just it's fascinating because the whole issue with this is so politicized and i mean only really a handful of people when you get down to it have ever really been allowed to see what was in these freaking mounds so right you know it's like there's a lot of question again you know and i mean i kind of wonder if sometimes that's why you hear all this stuff about like giant skeletons and stuff being found out and that's why that they need to suppress it. No, they need to suppress it to cover up the full scale of the genocide that we perpetuated. No, but that's not something people really want to think about, though. So, <laughs> right, right, yeah, no, it's a, it's definitely unsavory. But I, I guess my question is like, you know, do you think that they had uh, a plan for this country before Columbus landed on it? Because you know, we're told this idea that oh, we just discovered it on our way to India, we being Western culture, discovered North and South America on our way to find India. We didn't even know it was there. That, that can't be true. I mean, they must have had plans ahead of time. What do you think? Well, I mean, clearly they knew it was here. I mean, the Vikings and what have you had already, you know, I mean, kind of discovered this plus I think, in like, what, the 12th or the 13th century. I mean... You know, they knew that there was something out here. It was just, it wasn't really feasible, though, to do voyages here. I mean, until much later. And I mean, obviously, we had become better navigators and that kind of thing. But in terms of, like, having plans, I mean, yeah, I'm definitely sort of dubious, I mean, as to how much there was this sort of long-standing agenda to sort of do some of this stuff. I mean, I know... There's a lot of speculation with this, like with Francis Bacon and you know, what is it, the money pit and what have you in Nova Scotia and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It is something that I've been, you know, meaning to research recently for my book. But again, whether this is a long-term plan or another kind of Rastrofusion, um, I believe the term is game for the curious, <laughs> too, is to say. Mm, right. Well, and I, I'm glad you brought them up because I do want to talk about the Rosicrucians. I've heard you say that, you know, Rosicrucians are really somewhat of a live action role play. And I find that fascinating. I'm curious what you mean by that. Are you suggesting that, you know, they're sort of just playing a role that they know they're kind of like thumbing their nose at the public by playing this role and there's not no substance behind it or or is that well, they were basically there there was no Rosicrucian society to begin with i mean there was basically this network of wandering physicians who were obsessed with paracelsius and one of them andreev i believe was his name had started to write these sort of Rosicrucian manifestos along with some of these other groups to you know essentially you know because again to sort of put this in history 
historical context, this is unfolding right around the time the Thirty Year Wars post is about to set in. The Protestant Reformation is in full swing, and then the Catholics have started the Counter Reformation. People are running around burning witches left and right. Lots of people were dying. It, you know, it was not a happy time. And they're reflecting back on sort of like the brotherhood that existed among these sort of mystically inclined physicians during the Renaissance and how they all went together working to spread healing and enlightenment. And it's like, well, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had something like this? in this day and age that was, you know, geared towards these higher principles. I mean, it was almost a dream, but it's also, in a sense, a magical work. There were Freemasonic lodges prior to the Rosicrucian Manifestos being issued, but, I mean, they were very crude, and certainly they didn't have these higher principles, but in the aftermath of these manifestos being issued, you have this Masonic Renaissance that spreads out all across the UK and later Europe. In a lot of ways, this is the very essence of magic. So, you know, again, it was very much a live action role playing, but I think it goes to show how much mythos and really LARPing can be used in the perpetuation of magic, which I think is a point that a lot of people don't really grasp, but very high initiates do. So this is one of the big reasons why, generally speaking, I think people tend to really overemphasize Freemasonry. Rosicrucianism is so much more important. I mean, really, we wouldn't even have Freemasonry if we know it today, if it wasn't for Rosicrucianism. And this tradition, I mean, it continued. I mean, another major aspect of this was the 19th century occult scene in Paris, which is where the first satanic panic comes from. It's where the priori of Zion mythos ultimately comes from and all the stuff around René Lechetot and all this other stuff. And again, it's a Rosicrucian society. It was it the Rosicrucian Kabbalistic Society or whatever the hell they called it. Pappas was like a member of it. So Martinism derives from this as well. And a lot of the stuff around synarchy and whatnot. So, I mean, this is a big thing about Rosicrucianism is the spreading of these mythos. I mean, they really were kind of the discordians of the pre-modern era, if you will. I mean, that's a great way to sort of look at the Rosicrucians. So, yeah, it is a very big and important aspect of all of this that most people really overlook. But, I mean, they did so much in perpetuating these mythos that have inspired these other traditions. I mean, you really couldn't have had, you know, for instance, the Church of Satan if it wasn't for sort of the Leo Traxel LARPing that they were going back in the late 19th century. But again, you know, I think this sort of goes back to major aspect of magic that people just don't grasp. You know, the whole thing with abracadabra, it's a Coptic phrase. Uh, what is it? As I speak, I create... And that's something that I think a lot of Russian Christians have taken to heart over the years. Hmm. And do you think that's ultimately a good or, or bad thing that they've taken that to heart? Well, I think going into the 21st century, it has become very problematic as it's now starting to really tear at the fabric reality itself. Mm. Like <laughs> so many people... Because so many people are aware of this sort of observer effect, quantum positive thinking type thing, or is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, especially with the spread of the internet and things like Operation Mindfuck and what have you. I mean, yes, it's created, I mean, so many different 
I mean, it really has torn down the fabric of consensus reality. I mean, I mean, you know, nowadays, I mean, you almost have to try to figure out what reality somebody is existing in before you engage in a meaningful conversation with them. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there is no side that binds anymore. And I mean, I think it's only going to become even more fragmented as time goes on. And I mean, that doesn't even factor in, you know, I mean, what are things like CERN and you know, possible attempts to create a super intelligent AI and all this other kind of stuff contributed to it as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. Wow. No, and I, I completely relate to that. I think that's a challenge sometimes on this podcast to uh, to be able to find common ground because I like to discuss openly with anyone, even people I, I disagree with or agree with and and yeah, it is it is a challenge to find common ground sometimes and, you know, consensus reality, especially like what I mentioned before about Tartari. I mean, we have a lot of people that tune into this show because I've had a couple guests on that have, you know, broached their theory with Tartaria. And then those audience members take that same bias with them into other conversations and they'll say, oh, well, this isn't about Tartaria. You guys are all wrong. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like if that is equally true, like we have to be able to equally hear out everything, right? We can't just take your one truth as total truth. So I'm with you. I think consensus reality is slipping away from us, but I don't know if that's ultimately a bad thing. Do you think that's leading us to a deeper understanding of what we're here for or what we're a part of well i mean it's it has its pros and cons but it's going to be traumatic and in a lot of ways again to sort of go back to the era i was just describing when the first russia christian manifestos and i think it's you know kind of fascinating how these two eras are sort of like intertwined with one another but this was such a crucial perspective. This was such a crucial time frame because of the shift in paradigm then. I mean, people tend to get hung up on the transition from like the pagan to the Christian era, but in terms of like how this affected the worldview of the average person, it really wasn't as dramatic as a lot of people make it out to be. I mean, the average peasant living in the Middle Ages, had a very elaborate cosmology in which the pagan gods, the Christian saints, Jesus, and I mean, all of these other, you know, different entities coexisted with one another. But it was still very much a magical worldview where the supernatural was something that you coexisted with in your day-to-day life. And this sensibility persisted all the way up through the Renaissance. And It was only then, with the rise of secular materialism, that we went through this dramatic paradigm shift. And it was horrendous. I mean, it's like the witch burnings I was just sort of alluding to. Everybody thinks that this happened during the Middle Ages, and I don't really understand that. Like, the heyday of it was the 16th and the 17th century. And a lot of this was really driven more so by this shift in paradigm that I'm getting at. You know, I mean, it was just so traumatic to where you were used to seeing the world through this sort of prism where there was this supernatural component to where, you know, there's nothing. I mean, this, you know, total sort of secular atheistic worldview now prevails amongst the elite and the learned and so forth. And 
gradually it became more and more ingrained in society. And I think in a lot of ways, it also led to a devaluation of human life. I mean, I don't think that it's a coincidence that some of the largest slaughters in human history through systems like fascism and communism, which really grew out of these of this new paradigm of this industrial, of this mechanistic, of this secular paradigm perpetuated, you know? I mean, it was horrendous. It really was. So this is what has persisted all the way up until really the last couple of years. And now it's being challenged again, and I think it's ultimately going to be overthrown by a new sort of magical framework that is starting to emerge from the collapsing consensus reality. But if the historical precedent that we've witnessed with the last paradigm shift of this magnitude is any indication, it's not going to be pretty. And I mean, I think, you know, you're sort of seeing this now with like the, the, this kind of like fanaticism, for instance, it's coming out of like the Davos crowd and this sort of like all or nothing approach, because I mean, they know that this sort of worldview that has given them power is collapsing now on itself and that the window of opportunity is shrinking. And, you know, again, this is... A lot of ways perpetuating a broader global crisis of unipolarity versus a multipolar world and all this other kind of stuff. And certainly in a lot of countries outside of the West, I mean, secular materialism never really caught on. So, uh, you know, the transition will be easy outside of the West. I mean, I think it's here specifically uh, where, I mean, you know, there's trauma you know, that we're already starting to experience for this transition has become so pronounced and why you're seeing so much of this fanaticism and just this chaos that's raging all around, Mark. I mean, you know, it's it's going to be a bumpy ride, man. Yeah, it's it's been bumpy so far. And I'm curious, you know, do you think that this chaos is going to lead to some kind of chaos magic no pun intended i mean we're seeing more and more people aware of synchronicity and things like the mandela effect and other strange phenomena are becoming seemingly more apparent or at least more available to relay to others whereas before you know people in rural areas were isolated and had their own secret monsters now we can kind of share the monsters that are creeping around in our own backyard with the whole world yeah, I mean, I definitely think stuff like the Mandela effect is really going to become more pronounced. And I mean, I also think, too, that, you know, it, it's going to be less centered on the West as well. I mean, you know, for instance, I'm really fascinated by a lot of the developments in South America with some of the Discordian communities there and some magical traditions and so forth. I mean, just for... You know, one of the projects I'm working on, I had to revisit this thing here, but I mean, like, just the whole kind of studying how the book of St. Superior is like kind of arisen in some of these traditions. I mean, currently developing in South America. I mean, it's fascinating, man. I mean, it really is. But I mean, I think that this is also sort of further perpetuating this breakdown in consensus reality as we're starting to get, you know, through the internet and want to have you access to some of these different indigenous traditions. And we're seeing sort of the merger with some of the ones here from Europe. I mean, it's producing some really exciting stuff on a lot of levels. And it's gonna, I think, kind of perpetuate and continue in the direction that we're going in. And that's, you know, also 
kind of begging up the question, I mean, how much of this is deliberate? You know, I mean, I kind of think in a lot of ways, we more or less developed the whole thing with cybernetics to kind of understand how beliefs affect, you know, the very fabric of the physical world and a lot of levels. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's a brave new world. There's a lot of exciting stuff to look forward to, but I mean, it's, there's also a lot of people out there who are just not ready for this kind of thing, man. And especially within, I mean, I think the Western paradigm. Agreed. Yeah. And I'd love if you could elaborate on that book you just showed us and, and what is going on with the Discordian communities in South America, like for maybe people who aren't familiar, we have talked about Discordianism on this show before, but haven't quite given people a one-on-one. Well, as far as the book of St. Superior goes, I mean, it kind of ties into some of the stuff I've been working on with this project I'm uh, going to do for a podcast, Stephanie Quickman's Human Sacrifice. It's actually, it's just really fascinating to me because of the grimoire... Well, there's a couple of different ones, but the main one that's used in Brazil and a lot of other countries in South America originates from Portugal around the Iberian Peninsula. And this was just, this is a really significant area for occult stuff in general that a lot of people don't realize. I mean, the Zohar was basically compiled, Jared, you know, what we think of nowadays as modern day Kabbalahism and so forth. And this grimoire kind of originally came out of like that milieu that existed there. And the big thing about it is it's used a lot for summoning the devil up. That was like one of the more scandalous aspects about it. So anyway, you know, it goes to Brazil, it kind of drifts further down, you know, the peninsula and so forth. And a lot of the uh, shaman, like I think in the Mapuche tribe and some of the other ones and sort of the old Inca, you know, groups start using it to summon, you know, some of these entities in theory when they're doing these human sacrifice rituals. And gradually the drug cartels, you know, really become obsessed with this kind of stuff. And so now, you know, this is like one of the main grimoires that would be used for some of these sort of rituals that they're doing along with these almost sort of semi-mythological books. There are the, uh, was in the black and the white and the red books of magic and what have you. But this is like in theory where you get the spells that make you invisible or teach you how to shape shift and what have you. It's also kind of fascinating how like the werewolf needs those always kind of seem to be connected with all this human sacrifice stuff as well, because that's another topic. But yeah, in terms of the Discordian community, I mean, they've got also, again, a really a vibrant one in South and Brazil and also two in Argentina. Been in contact with some of them, like Sirius Manzos and some of these other guys. But yeah, they did that whole thing with, oh gosh... A guy from 2017 who had supposedly disappeared or something like that. Why he was Isaac Cappy? No, not Isaac Cappy. He was from Brazil. Oh, okay. Uh, it was something to do with like maybe oh, Bruno or something like that. Bruno Borges or something like that. He had like the same name as you know the magician Bruno uh, from Renaissance Italy, and he had disappeared for a while. But it actually was a whole Discordian kind of thing that they were doing with like the media and what have you. Ah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's definitely some interesting kind of synchronism going on with some of these different groups. But just 
studying the whole history of this alone, and I mean, how it kind of has that sort of lineage from the Iberian Peninsula and the whole sort of tradition with the Kabbalah, and then you sort of see how it's been incorporated into some of these sort of cultic practices that are now emerging in the Americas and specifically been sort of adopted by the drug cartels and some of these more sinister rituals. It's just endlessly fascinating, man. Mm, yeah, I picked up a book not too long ago called the uh, it's like brazilian black magic by diego de oase and uh, i reached out to the publisher to see if i can have him on for an interview and they said he only speaks portuguese so i've been planning on maybe finding a translator and doing sort of a a group podcast where we get some people together who are knowledgeable in magic and ask this gentleman questions while we have access to him and a translator i think it could be very interesting but yeah there's this whole confluence that happens between the european western mindset and then the indigenous south american mindset where you have like the saints and the tutelary spirits the energies of the landscape kind of mixing together the crossroads are very important in this one section that this author writes about and it's interesting you see that parallel in american culture i know you spent some time talking about that in the penny royal series the significance of roads and and maybe not yourself but i know that series deal dealt with that but you know there's this legend of people selling their soul at the crossroads and yeah it's certainly a lot of interesting things going on well, another thing, too, I'll tell you about some of the synchronism that kind of plays in with the Discordians, too, is they played an unacknowledged role in shaping some of this history. Like, there's a guy called Bill Weinberg, who's one of the, he's really the main author for a lot of the the indigenous tribes in Mexico, but he's also a really good buddy of Hakeem Bey and a guy who was really big with us in Discordian communities. And there's at least one other scholar I'm aware of who does a lot with the sense of to stuff who's also a bit of a discordian too so yeah there's that kind of element how much of these of this is truly indigenous traditions and how much of it is discordians trying to put their own mythos over indigenous traditions another component to this people don't really talk about a lot so well it, it certainly shows in like a figure like carlos castaneda i mean mm -hmm, when you look at like mm -hmm. the latter half of his life it's it's very different than maybe what he intended on doing and and maybe that speaks to like the energy taking hold of you too and and having you know control over you and maybe people don't anticipate that they think they're gonna you know change the world and and the, the world changes them but what have you researched when it comes to carlos castaneda because you lit up there i feel like you have some thoughts on him well, you probably do better to ask Stephanie quick. I'm mainly aware of some of the stuff that I've talked about with her. But yeah, I mean, there was also sort of that cult of witches that he had around him and the speculation that they had committed suicide after his own death. But yeah, I mean, he was another one of these figures in that same kind of milieu who once again tried to impose his own particular spin on these indigenous traditions. And I mean, this is something, again... This is another book that I'm about to discuss with Stephanie Quick, and this guy, Patrick Tierney, also has been in trouble with that. He later wrote a later book. Gosh, I can't remember the name of it now, but it turned out that most of the information on it was fabricated. 
And in this book specifically, he's really trying to perpetuate this whole thing about human sacrifice amongst the Incas and the Mayans and what have you. And this seems to be a big thing that a lot of these scholars linked to some of these Discordian traditions are really obsessed with. And it does kind of make you wonder why, especially with how big this Mayan and Aztec stuff has become nowadays amongst the kids and what have you. And why do they really, really want to try to emphasize this particular aspect of their culture involving human sacrifice, assuming that this hasn't also been fabricated by the Spanish in the first place, which is another question. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and the whole idea of like that they used a human <laughs> head or chopped off somebody, the, the loser's head in these ball games that they oh, were yes, playing. Yes. And, and then also like the Santa Moriarty cult. I mean, again, uh, that's another one. I, I say some stuff about that that I'm not going to say, but yeah, there's... Well, it's dark stuff, so I respect your, you know, keeping it close, because I know, you know, you don't want to give up too much. We don't know who's listening, but when it comes to what I suggested earlier with talking about Skull and Bones, I feel like we've found a good segue there because Teotihuacan, right, the pyramid in Mexico, according to a researcher I've spoke to, author Peter Shampoo, it's on one very ancient ley line that goes through major U.S. cities along the East Coast. It's called the Acadian ley line in colonial times, it was called Satan's axes because everything west of it was considered, you know, wild and untamed. And, and nowadays we have Boston, New Haven, New York City, Philadelphia. I mean, the, the heads of East Coast power all arranged on this line that goes back to this place that we're told was meant for human sacrifice. And I found that really. Oh, yeah. Well, anytime you see the Acadia thing, and that's it's actually really interesting on a lot of levels. Okay, so for people not familiar with this, Acadia was a region in ancient Greece, and they had this tradition that this was actually the home of Zeus and not Olympus. And supposedly Zeus did not want this to be his home because at one point they had tried to feed him a sacrifice that included human beings. And we have, in fact, found ample evidence that human sacrifice was perpetuated there. And interestingly enough, this is also where the European tradition of the werewolf mythos comes from. Because once Zeus realized that he was being fed human flesh, he supposedly turned the king of Arcadia into a wolf and some of the other citizenry and so forth. And so and and then we're told that Rome was started by two what pups that were nursing on a wolf, right? I mean, wow. Yeah, wow, yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so you will, there's always like this sort of tradition with werewolves. So anyway, like, but for whatever reason, Arcadia is revered within some of these occult circles. And that whole area that I was just telling you about in the Iberian Peninsula that sort of encompassed Eros parts of Spain, Portugal, and France, it also would have included the region around René Chateau, all the mountains like in the Pyrenees and so forth. It was considered to be the new Arcadia. Like that famous painting in Arcadia was actually meant to represent that particular region. And this is again where the Zohar and that, you know, grimoire was just showing you came from. And so again, all this stuff then gets relocated, you know, out to South America and here in the United States. And again, you see all these references to Arcadia. So yeah, Arcadia is a dead giveaway to a very ancient tradition. I'm 
still trying to grasp all of it in full, but I mean, it goes into all this stuff with theurgy, with you know, Platonism that we were talking about, with werewolf mythos, and a lot of this other stuff that seems to have been grafted onto some of these indigenous traditions or was present there. We don't really know because we don't really have access to this stuff. Right. So, be either or, but yeah, in a Arcadian way is a big thing, and it really is. Well, and also, you know, going back to your point about human sacrifice, I think it makes a lot of sense that they would want to dehumanize the people they were colonizing and conquering by saying stuff like, oh, well, they they were killing each other. So, you know, how valuable did they even, you know, take themselves? Like, it's sort of like a a sinister way of, of getting people's consensus to be violent towards another group of people but then we see this group skull and bones like i said coming to prominence on that same ley line arrangement and they have a collection of heads and skulls underneath their you know headquarters and i've always pondered like why would they do that you know geronimo's skull was famously robbed by a former president george hw bush's father prescott bush and you know, given what we just said about dehumanizing, it's almost like they're they're taking the inheritance away from that group of people and supplanting it, you know, and taking it for themselves. Like, you know, now we are the inheritors of this ancestry of this continent. Well, the skull cult, I mean, might actually be the oldest form of religion there is. I mean, we found traces of it even among the Neanderthals, supposedly. So it goes back a long way. And I mean, it does, you know, again, I think there was also a custom of that in Arcadia, too. Again, the famous painting I'm talking about, if you remember, there is a skull present. And I think with the worms growing out of it, there's the two shepherds there and what have you. So you see references to that. But yeah, I mean, often two of the mounds supposedly were found with skulls, ceremonial trophy skulls. And and yes, skull and bones have that tradition of it. It's a fascinating thing. I mean, the Egyptians also had their own sort of issue with that and the whole kind of thing with decapitation. Now, we're told that, that St. John the Baptist's skull was used by the Templars for maybe divination purposes. Have you seen anything that relates to that or, or can you corroborate that explanation for maybe why they're collecting skulls and what they could be doing with them? Well, I mean, the skull is for divination purposes went back well, I mean, before the whole tradition with John the Baptist. I mean, I think that in some ways, some of these groups adopt John the Baptist as a patron as sort of a tip of the hat of the fact that they are a skull cult in some sense, because, I mean, that is one of the primary things that you associate the Baptist with is himself being beheaded. Because, yeah, I mean, again, you know, the technical name for the Knights of Malta is the Sovereign Order of St. John. So, again, they're another one of these groups that has, you know, this whole St. John fetish. But I do think that, yeah, there is this sort of evidence that there has been this skull cult that has persisted persisted among various elite groups for some time. I mean, I don't really totally understand it or to have an explanation for it, but I mean, it does seem like there are reoccurring traces of it throughout a lot of these different orders. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it is fascinating when you look at Skull and Bones and their headquarters, its proximity to a building called the Knights of Columbus Tower, and it's this sort of four-pronged tower, one of the taller buildings in New Haven. Have you looked into the Knights of Columbus and maybe where they're related in this, you know, mix? 
Well, the Knights of Columbus were like a Catholic order that was sort of established as an alternative to Freemasonry, essentially. I never really heard too much sinister stuff about the Knights of Columbus. Mm. Well, it makes sense that they would place themselves in Yale University's sort of proximity because Yale's a very Protestant venture. It's started mm-hmm. by, you know, I think Calvinists and, and very, you know, cer- certain specific types of uh, Protestants like Theophilus Eaton and another guy, John Davenport, who had their connections to the old world. And actually New Haven was the wealthiest colony at its start when it was founded. I was far wealthier than the Plymouth colony and the people up in Massachusetts there in Boston. But yeah, I've been kind of studying this area historically. And and one thing that stood out is in ancient times, they would create a nine square grid and that would be the town. That's how they would plot it out. And you don't see that too often in the United States, but you do see it in New Haven And what's interesting is when you take the squares and you take the nine and you sort of number it one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, it doesn't line up to where it actually is on the map. Where it is on the map is is sort of in the middle of one of the lower sections. So I was curious, like, why would they, you know, put the ninth square there? It doesn't seem like it numerologically makes sense until I looked at the magic square, which is like, you know, every side equals 15 you ever seen the magic square Mm. put the numbers through it one through nine and it seems to me you know just armchair researching that they intentionally built a magic square into the layout of new haven it's also the location of america's first cemetery what i mean by that is never before in america did they have like roads and paved out plots and individual sections before that time it was just sort of like a mass burial behind wherever the church was and yeah it's kind of like you know city of the dead and then curiously enough a little time after after the whole william morgan thing and everybody freaked out about the freemasons we have you know skull and bones emerging you know we're told it was influenced by german organizations and i'm curious you know have you ever heard anything about that like what preceded skull and bones like you talked earlier about this illuminati the bavarian illuminati and it seems like that's at play here somehow but they seem to be inspired by hegel george hegel and i'm just wondering like was there a previous chapter of skull and bones and if so have you seen it well i actually don't think that there was any connection really to the illuminati and skull and bones sutton based pretty much all of his research elements that he got from charlotte Estabay, who actually did come from a family who were multi-generational members of skull and bones and in addition to having these documents had a lot of inside dirt on skull and bone which sutton did not have Anyway, after Charlotte died, my buddy Jake, gosh, I cannot, I always forget his last name. He wrote uh, the book School World Order, uh, ended up with pretty much all of Charlotte's skull and bones documents. He's been through these and he saw nothing in them that would have connected the order to the Illuminati. And he has no idea where Sutton got that from. So I suspect Sutton did that mainly to... uh, fuel his own political agenda more than anything because based on what jake has seen from the same documents that sutton has that had there was no basis for any of that 
So that is in and of itself is quite problematic. Secondly, it begs the question, why the fuck would they have to go to Germany in the first place to get somebody to give them an initiation from the Illuminati? There were plenty of freaking Illuminati who fled to the United States after the French Revolution <laughs> right. and the suppression of the order. It, it doesn't make any freaking sense. Yeah. So, I, I yeah, I, what I've been told, and and you're right to to say, I think Sutton puts this in his book that um, William Huntington Russell and another member uh, Taft, Alfonso Taft, spent their junior summer in Germany and were inspired by what they learned at the University of Berlin uh, by George Hegel. And we see this sort of like problem, reaction, solution approach that George Hegel seems to have philosophized about. Really take a main stage in politics and how politics have been manipulated. I mean, would you agree with that? That there's sort of this modus operandi that's been carved out that they're just kind of like, all right, we're going to take what works and use it. It's not really original to them. It's just sort of a tactic they adopted from some German philosopher. Really, I think they've simply perpetuated the agenda of the Society of Cincinnati and perpetuated the American empire. I mean, really, this is quite evident when you look at a guy like Henry Stimson, who was the secretary of war and a bonesman. I mean, he was the guy who brought the so-called wise men into the administration initially of FDR and then later Truman, and they continued to have an influence for years to come. I mean, this was basically the beginning of the neocon movement and more or less of the whole rise of the American empire. You know, again, this was the agenda that a lot of these guys were pushing for. And once again, it was closely tied to the same network of people from Cincinnati. This was something I actually wrote about in my second book. But contrary, I think, to the spin that Sutton tries to put onto this, many of the people from Skull and Bones were actually diehard American imperialists. They had very much crafted the ideal of containment and deliberately had sabotaged efforts by the Rockefeller family to achieve detente with the Soviet Union in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War because they wanted to build up America as a major military power. So I think Sutton is full of shit, to be perfectly honest with you. Right on. Well, I appreciate you, you saying that. And, you know, it's hard as uh, someone who's just kind of wading into this very serious information to realize that you're not just reading a book for the words in it, but you're reading a book for the author. And it takes, you know, someone like yourself who's clearly read a lot to be able to discern that. Me, I just kind of for a while took things at face value and and didn't think about questioning the author until I had some great authors on my show and I'm like well I'm already doing that here now why shouldn't I think twice about this stuff so and I mean again you know look at another family that founded Skull and Bones the Taft family mm -hmm. okay the ancestor of the Taft family was one of the people who freaking helped set up the America First committee in fact America First was basically founded at Yale University okay Taft was at the forefront of the isolationist movement I just you know again I don't really get this why people are so the whole thing with the Hegelian thing and what have you yeah well, it seems like a, a dead end that I'm glad I, I haven't gotten hung up on for too long. And I'm, I appreciate you clearing this up. But when it comes to them sort of 
pointing the finger at Germany, it seems to make sense considering what happened less than 100 years later, making Germany the fall guy and the bad guy and propping them up as this military power to really, you know, complete their plan for more control over Europe and the rest of the world. Well, in that sense, yeah, I mean, they were definitely, I think, at the forefront of the isolationist movement and had very much wanted peace with Germany. But I mean, once again, this sort of went back to conflicting views of what was really important. I mean, again, you know, Taft and a lot of these guys, I mean, their, you know, base of power was really out of Cincinnati and along with like kind of the cowboy faction from the West Coast. What these guys really wanted wasn't isolationism they wanted the empire but they wanted it in the pacific you know they just didn't feel the need to go die in a european war and this is something you know going back out to the taft who had become president i mean they have been pushing for for years i mean he was the military governor of was it the philippines after the aftermath of the spanish-american war so I think that that was like a major issue in a lot of this. I mean, more so than the sort of, you know, kinship with Germany so much is that the agenda that they and a lot of other people wanted to pursue was to continue to expand in Asia, which in a lot of ways they correctly deemed was the future instead of funding American resources on another European war, because, you know, we had gotten so much out of the First World War after all. Right, right, right. Well, yeah, it's definitely, again, it's elucidating to hear this. You know, not many people are willing to write about these topics, and it's, it's hard, to, hard to find them. But you mentioned a gentleman who wrote a book called School World Order, Jake, is it Klysak? Is it last year? Yes, Klysak. Yeah, I think I'm sorry, Jake. I always forget your That's all right. I I know. It's all right. I mean, I'm sure he won't hear this. If he does, shout out to you, brother. I've actually had the owner of Trine Day on the show, Chris Milligan. I think his book is published by Trine Day. And yeah, a lot of interesting work has come out. It seems like the university system itself has been used against us in a multi-pronged attack, you know, dumbing us down, but then also selecting for the privileged, moldable minds that they can use towards this agenda. And that's why you see Skull and Bones placed in such an influential university. And it's just one of many. There are so many other uh, secret groups that exist in other colleges, Harvard, Princeton, William and Mary, you know, you name it, there's a secret society in that college. Well, I mean, I think the other big one really is Stanford and then also, you know, obviously the connection with Bohemia and Grove. I mean, it's it's kind of fascinating to me because, I mean, I think when you sort of look at like, you know, for a lot of years, the pinnacle of some of these like occult networks in the United States, but you had Bohemian Grove out of San Francisco. And for a lot of years, the faculty of both Stanford and UC Berkeley were heavily tied to Skull, or excuse me, Bohemian Grove, Freudian Slipter, to Bohemian Grove, which is really quite fascinating in some of the stuff that was going on with the two universities. As you sort of alluded to, I mean, this was basically where the gifted program was devised and more or less where eugenics were continued, like after the Second World War between these two faculties, which again, they're kind of being managed on the slide by people affiliated with Bohemian Grove. And then on the other side of the country, you had obviously Yale and the connections with Skull and Bones. 
And then, you know, honestly, I mean, it's often overlooked, but I'm in the middle of the country, you have the Mormons and they have their own sort of system as well. And, you know, people don't really talk about it a lot, but they do play quite a significant role within the power structure of things. Hmm. Well, yeah, I know you've done some work on that recently. And yeah, a lot of people don't realize they had their own state, the state of Deseret, right? This is a, a, an enormous colony. It took up most of the Western United States before they were carved out to be the states we know them as the now. But, you know, Mormonism has humble roots in New York as a sort of pseudo-Masonic well, thing, right? It's interesting because, like, within the Mormon hierarchy, because they really are a very aristocratic, you know, organization, almost all the major families go back to those, like, old guard Boston families. This is, you know, right. something my friend and I have, like, spent a lot of time researching. Incidentally, two, two of Joseph Smith's wives were families that have been involved in the society of cincinnati as well but it's it's really fascinating that's another reason why i think people should look more at mormonism because mormonism is very much part of this lineage of these old guard boston families and it's like the same thing uh, with bohemian grove and like the families around stanford and what have you these guys were again very much a part of the lineage of these old boston families i mean you know this is something jake and i kind of talked about a lot but when you look at a lot of um the major american dynasties if you go back far enough they're either connected to the old you know families around boston new haven and salem and so forth or some of the dutch families from new york state who are other also major power players but even like you know like with something like the morgan family i mean you go back far enough i mean who are they related to they're related to these dutch families like the rossiers or people like alexander hamilton and so on and so forth so it's it's really just fascinating i mean how so many of these lineages have perpetuated. I mean, I think like even in the case of a guy like Michael Aquino, whose family were very much a part of this, you know, kind of aristocratic lineage in San Francisco. I mean, I think they even went back to a Boston family, like the Lanes or something like that. So, wow, wow, Lane, huh? That's a, the name of my buddy who lives in New Hampshire. Shout out to the Wicked Planet podcast. His last name is Lane. I hope I'm not saying too much on his behalf, but wow. Yeah, you mentioned another person there that I wanted to comment on. I forgot now, but yeah, it definitely feels like there is this hidden network. I mean, I mean, like the Taft family, man, they actually ahead. originated from Braintree, which I think mm. is freaking great. Yeah, Chris Knowles talks Chris a lot Knowles. about Braintree. Yeah, it's a very weird place. I think Braintree was like originally within like the the region of Salem, wasn't it? I wouldn't I wouldn't know off the top of my head, but it's I know close. it was closely connected to like the Adams family, who again were like another major powerhouse. And I think like Abigail Adams actually owned that whole area for a while or something like that. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, there's a town called North Adams, Massachusetts. I wouldn't be surprised if that bears their name but yeah it, it's certainly interesting to to wander around in this esoteric america we find ourselves in and come across these you know magnificent houses or or like you know fancy estates and gardens made by these people that have fallen under the radar you know for the most part they operate in secret but yeah, I hadn't learned I hadn't learned that before that there's this boss genealogy in the Mormons. That's interesting. 
Really? No, yeah, no. no. I mean, the Mormons are very much, I think, a part of this whole New England lineage and whatnot. And again, I mean, also this whole Neoplatonic theurgic lineage that we've been talking about, because again, this is where Joseph Smith got the whole ideology from angel magic, man, you know, scrying right, and right. so forth. So, I mean, that's why, I mean, you know, I know people overlook Mormonism, but it's so fascinating. It's like Howard Bloom said, it really is a American Gnosticism. And there is this really kitsy element to it that, you know, you can use to hook in the masses. But I mean, if you look beyond that i mean you can see how these guys were involved in some really high ritual magic and some very ancient traditions which is why i think you see a lot of weird stuff show up in conjunction with mormonism and i mean it's really you know fascinating when you look at how many mormon elders i mean currently are funding like a lot of the ufo narratives and what have you as well because i mean i think they also have a good claim as kind of an ancient astronaut religion as well i mean i was that they claim god is from cabal the planet or something like that so they also believe that they'll be given you know governorship over their own planet after they reincarnate if they do everything right along with three wives part <laughs> that's the important thing three wives bro wow okay well you know Can they're you imagine not... <laughs> if you reincarnate you get not only your own planet but three freaking wives bro yeah it's it sounds like a better deal than the 99 virgins that you get for killing yourself in the name of allah so yeah maybe i'll go with that one instead <laughs> interesting well when it comes to the Boston Brahmins, I mean, they weren't just involved in the slave trade, they were involved in drug trafficking, and, and now we see this sort of esoteric occult scene mixing with the psychedelic drug scene. It really feels like this is sort of another part of our history that has been forgotten, like the medicine society or the medicine people that practiced herbology and folk craft here in, in the States. And then how these surgeons, who were just another, you know, word for shaman, really a surgeon back in the day, someone who would heal you. These guys came along and, and took all of these plants and, and made alchemy. You know, they turned it into gold. You know, they turned something that was free into something that they could commodify and make thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, a whole empire with. So there is some magic that took place here in, in New England and I'm sure well, it's carried that's, over. You know, I mean, I think that's the key component because if I'm not mistaken, weren't some of the early governors of Massachusetts like practicing alchemists or something to that effect? Yeah, the first the first colonial governor of Connecticut was John Winthrop the Younger, who yes, was an Winthrop. alchemist. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. His father was not. His father was very strict against the witches, but he was like, you know, <laughs> apple fell a little far from the tree, kind of rebellious against his dad. And he was actually the reason why the Connecticut witch trials came to an end, because he had some magical sensibility and, and wasn't as superstitious, we'll say, as his peers, possibly. Well, see, I mean, it's fascinating because, I mean, again, around the same time, this is when, like, you know, you have the Rosicrucian manifestos appearing and also where I think the Bohemian Brethren were starting to make some inroads, you know, into England at the time. And again, you know, these guys were really into Rosicrucianism, but they were also really into theurgy and stuff like that. So I've kind of wondered, you know, I mean, if there was like that transmission where some of this stuff was brought over to Boston and it kind 
kind of like was practiced amongst the upper classes and what have you. Because, I mean, I really do think that there was something to the allegations of magical practices and what have you at Salem and whatnot. But, I mean, probably what the elites were involved in, you know, was way more serious than, I mean, what any of the, you know, normal people were doing. Mm. Yeah. And you'd imagine that they would want to have some people to consult with, like this Tichaba character who curiously is not from the area we're told she's from the caribbean maybe practicing some kind of hoodoo or voodoo and and yeah they they sort of used her as a scapegoat but i wouldn't be surprised if she was more of a consultant or an advisor to the elite and and when the you know common folk got word of that they turned on her or used her as a you know scapegoat to get people off their track but it certainly feels like with the estates and the architecture and the the level of splendor, you know, that these are not just <laughs> industrial people focused on empire. They're they're focused on beauty and the metaphysics of life, but they're doing it in a way that almost seems like a part of their power. Like you can't reveal your personal practice. You can't reveal your personal secrets because then you give away some of your power. So it seems like these folks have have really worked to not just keep us ignorant, but obscure the information even when we do come across it to keep their magic more private, so to speak. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, quite possibly. I mean, it does certainly seem like that they have gone to great lengths to sort of cover up some of these traditions and whatnot. And we've you know, only kind of gotten hints here and there. But yeah, it does certainly seem like, I mean, among that Boston elite specifically, there was some very peculiar traditions that were gradually sort of filtered into some of these different groups, like the Society of Cincinnati and Skull and Bones and Bohemian Grove and whatnot. And it is fascinating. I mean, also the Mormon church is well right now are there any other interesting groups that have sort of evolved afterwards i mean i've heard about a group called the order of memphis and mithraeum that i really haven't seen many people talk about chris knowles mentions them sometimes here and there but you you did a, a lot of really interesting research when they had you on the penny royal series and you know there's this druidic order the Gwen, gwendonic order of some something or other in, in Kentucky down there. I tried looking it up. Good luck trying to spell Gwendonic, but I couldn't. Maybe others can. Are there any sort of occult orders that stand out to you that you don't think maybe I've heard of or others have, have maybe not come across yet? Well, there's one that I've tracked a lot for years, which was one of the American versions of the Sovereign Order of St. John, which has a... A really fascinating history. So like anyway, the sort of modern incarnations of these things came about around 1956 and was set up by this guy called Charles Pichel. And it was just such a bizarre setup. On the one hand, you had like a lot of these far right wing military officers who signed up for it. And in the early years going forward, there was always a really close connection with Christian identity theology. And for those of you unfamiliar, Christian identity theology holds that white people are the true Jews of the Bible, that the actual Jews are subhuman, ape-like creatures. And pretty much anybody who's not white actually would fall under that category and so on and so forth. And it's also been linked to 
extensive acts of terrorism in the United States for years and years. Members of the order, for instance, were practitioners of Christian identity theology. Gordon Call was a practitioner of Christian identity theology. A lot of people in the National States Rights Party believed in it and so forth. The Sovereign Order of St. John also had a lot of ties to traditional Catholic circles and also wandering bishops. In fact, one of the things that Peter Levin never talks about with the American Orthodox Catholic Church is there were also some of these Sovereign Order of St. John people connected to it, most notably Christopher Maria Stanley, who was a member of the Order of St. John, and also one of the people who ordained Michael Itkin, who was an arch pedophile, and also the person who ordained Hakeem Bey of the Orthodox Moorish Temple. So one of these knights got around, to put it mildly. So anyway, you had a lot of these really fanatical right-wing military officers, these Christian identity zealots and what have you, who were involved with this. But Pichel was also obsessed with a lot of new age kind of stuff. We found out that George Hunt Williamson was a member of the Sovereign Order of St. John. Cleve Baxter, who was the guy who claimed to be able to talk to plants through a polygraph, was a member of the Sovereign Order of St. John. And in fact, he was going all around the country interviewing, you know, people like Travis Walton and other UFO contactees and sending reports to Pichel back about this kind of stuff. And on top of that, the Order of St. John was freaking obsessed with orgone energy. In fact, there were several prominent orgone energy practitioners who were members of the Sovereign Order of St. John. So, I mean, it was just this strange network where you had like these right-wing military officers who might have been running an American Gladio essentially through it on the one hand. And then on the other hand, I mean, they were engaged in like all this shit with like orgone energy and UFO contactees. And I mean, it's just the strangest stuff. But I've spent years collecting documentation on this. And the really bizarre thing is the fact that I've come to find out that they might have actually had a connection to the Society of Cincinnati. There was an ongoing dispute, of course, about the legitimacy of their lineage and the official Knights of Malta, the Sovereign Military Order of Malta, sued them as far back as 1958 over trademark infringement. And then I think it was just recently, like 2013, 2014, a judge in Florida ruled that an American branch of the Order of St. John had a right to use the trademark because they had a better claim to it than the official Knights of Malta did, essentially. And that might actually be tied into this French branch of the Society of Cincinnati I've been talking about. So it's just freaking insane, man. Yeah, wow. It seems like they... It's the same group of actors that put on different costumes and, and change the, the theater that they put on just slightly enough to keep the audience, you know, feeling like they're seeing something new when it's the same old song and dance. And I mean, you know, this group is a serious group. I mean, just as recently as like the early 90s, they turned up in a PACCON investigation when they were looking at the Civilian Material Assistance Group, which was a paramilitary organization that was directly involved in Iran-Contras. I mean, these were guys that were being you. I mean, like a guy like John Sinklob, for instance, was a member of the Order of St. John. So, I mean, these groups were, you know, actually being used 
by senior military and intelligence officers to run guns during Iran-Contra and what have you. So, I mean, they also had very senior connections to the intelligence community, to the military hierarchy. And from what I understand, I mean, to this day, I mean, General William Boykin, for instance, I mean, is a member of one of the current incarnations of the Order of St. John. I've heard Eric Prince is a member of one of these groups and what have you. It's still like a big thing in a lot of these special operations forces circles and what have you. So, you know, again, this is like another, you know, kind of major network that nobody ever really talks about, even though it has this bizarre lineage that's been closely tied to Gladio and drug and arms trafficking and just a host of other things. Mm. Well, it, like I said, it seems like same old song and dance when we look at the history of the drug smuggling here in New England and the major cities of these families that, like you've laid out very clearly, have gone on to have prominent roles, not just in government, but in groups like the Mormons and others. And and yeah, they, they continue this you know economy, this black market economy to this day, probably just with better means of, of accomplishing it in, in, without our knowing. You know, they don't have to rely on big wooden heavy ships anymore. They could fly stuff around and you know, dead drop things and have agents and like souped up SUVs fly down a highway and go pick it up. You know, it, it, it's really a scary thing to to consider when you realize it's not just drugs, it's, it's human trafficking, it's military operations that might not be in our favor as denizens of this country. You know, it seems like we're just a shadow or sheep, you know, rather than human beings with an actual say, which it is anachronistic to, you know, what we're told Washington and his contemporaries set us up for, right? I mean, we're, we're told that the Constitution gives us these inalienable rights, but then this lineage of people have clearly gone back on those promises. It makes you question whether that was just a smokescreen. And I mean, I think, you know, especially after doing the research on this, it definitely was. The purpose of the Constitution was to put, you know, essentially the mechanisms in place to create an empire. That is what Washington and these people wanted. They wanted an empire from the very beginning. And the Constitution, it was enshrined, I think, to eventually create this institution of the imperial presidency and an empire that would stretch not only from sea to signing sea, but eventually beyond it. You know, and again, that's why I don't think it's a coincidence that Ohio, uh, the state most touched by the Society of Cincinnati, was who really drove the next phase of this. So, Well, yeah, first to fly as well. I mean, we're in a whole new world thanks to some of the mm -hmm. innovations in that state. Yeah, wow. It's incredible. And then, you know, not to mention we have this, you know, John D. character who sort of creates the British Empire in some matter of speaking. I know I'm summing a lot of history up into one sentence. It's clearly a continuation of that same plot, to me at least. You well, know, it's also amazing just to I mean how much theurgy plays like a big role in this. Because, I mean, this is another thing a lot of these different groups and individuals we keep talking about. I mean, we're really into is this whole, you know, kind of angel magic, astro magic, whatever you want to call it. But, I mean, it is a fascinating thing because it seems like a lot of this was reintroduced to the West from the Eastern Roman Empire, you know, towards the ends of its collapse in you know, the 15th century. And I mean, once some of these different elites start getting into this stuff, man, I mean, look at all the stuff that starts to happen. We discovered the new world. I mean, you've got all these different kind of occult orders springing up and whatnot. 
You know, you know, as I've kind of been elaborating, I mean, it was an underlying factor with Mormonism. I mean, a lot of people like the Bohemian Brethren were practicing it. Obviously, John Dee was practicing it. I mean, the Rosicrucian groups were practicing it. I'm guessing a lot of the Boston elites were probably practicing this kind of stuff, too. Probably the founders were, which might have been one of the reasons why they were so interested in the mounds, because it seems like, at least if the official histories are correct, the Adena and the Hopewell had their own variation on it. So... Yeah, I mean, that to me is like what gets really interesting about all of this. How much of a role did that play in all of this? Yeah, wow. No, it is incredible. I mean, it, it feels like we're, you know, in a position now to resolve some of the wounds that have been, you know, embedded into our psyche. We're able to discuss this freely now, but... You know, we're, we're still sort of coming out of a, a slumber. You know, so many people are sleepwalking, not aware of, of most of what we've talked about today. I, speaking for people who probably aren't tuning in, if you're tuning in, I assume you're probably almost halfway there or more so. Maybe you know more than more than I, probably. I don't know if you know more than Stephen. I, I would put some bets on that. But when we talk about this wave that we're heading towards, whatever it is, I mean, do you think that the United States is heading towards more oppression, more tyranny, or do you think this empire has a potential of becoming a sort of utopian empire of some kind? Well, I mean, I think in general, you know, we're heading towards a different way, so to speak. I mean, again, you know, part of the transformation that we're undergoing, it's not just a shift in paradigm or a spiritual transformation, I think it's also going to be <laughs> a geopolitical transformation. And this is, I think in general, like one of the big problems right now is, I mean, we're still trying to like analyze these things like, are we going to fascism or communism? And, you know, again, these are ideologies that are products of the industrial revolution and secular materialism and so forth. And the nation state, you know, I mean, again, this is a product of the Westphalian peace that came out of the 17th century and a lot of these other kinds of institutions, capitalism and so forth. All of this was a product of this industrial revolution, this secular materialist paradigm that we've been discussing. And it's all coming to an end right now. So... You know, and I think that's a big problem is that there's no vision. You know, we need to like kind of look beyond that stuff and try to find like what's going to be the next phase of social order. And I think, you know, some of the elites have already started to look at that and they've kind of settled on the whole notion of networking, which I think does have a lot of potential. I mean, this was really what the New Age movement used to gain a lot of influence in the circles of power. And I mean, I think it's a fascinating concept because on the one hand, there's no way that, you know, we're going to go back from this sort of interconnected, you know, international era, you know what I'm saying, with the rise of the internet and so forth, there is going to be a component of globalism. But I think globalism itself is a dead end for a variety of reasons. But, you know, essentially complex systems almost inevitably collapse for two reasons. One is just because, I mean, of just how elaborate they become and how difficult it becomes to get anything done through them. And secondly, because of corruption, when you do have these elaborate systems, there's so much graft and this only contributes to the inefficiency of them. 
So I think that's why right now, you know, in the recent years, we've seen the Soviet Union collapse. The European Union is in the process of falling apart. And I think there's really a good chance that the United States and China could collapse in the coming years. And certainly I think the UN system is fucked and, you know, its days are numbered as well. So that's not going to be, in my opinion, the vision of globalism that prevails. And in a best case scenario, it would be some variation on this sort of networking concept where we would be kind of interconnected through some kind of blockchain or something like that, but then we would have these local nodes set up. Because this is another thing, you know, for networking to work, it can't just be a bunch of people sitting around like on a computer. We need to get out, you know, into the field and start setting up communities and so on and so forth. And, you know, I've just, you know, talked to Miguel about this, but I think this is why it's important, for instance, that he and Chris are kind of doing stuff like the conference and, you know, I can't earn Cancun and what have you. I think that it's important that, you know, there's more of this sort of real world stuff that's going on because I think in the future, eventually, you know, like-minded individuals are going to have to come together and build these communities in specific areas where we have this sort of local culture that prevails, but we're going to be interconnected, you know, internationally through these networks and so on and so forth so that we can have this trade and these communications with us. And, you know, there's exciting possibilities to this. I mean, it's going to potentially finally get a lot of like-minded individuals across the world to come together and build something that could be really amazing. That's the best case scenario if we don't destroy ourselves in the intern. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. And I think this is a great juxtaposition, everything we've talked about already with like the concept of a secret society, because why do we even have secret societies? Because they, they want to funnel who's having a say in what changes in the world, right? And have a modicum of control. And I want to bring it back to theurgy and maybe bring this to a question for you, which is like, do you think that now that we're in this hyper-connected state, or at least have the potential to be in a more hyper-connected state, that we can access this element of divination through theurgy and start to interact with God's plan the same way these secret societies have or tried to. And, you know, that we see the byproducts of that, us being dumbed down and suppressed and drugged. And, you know, that's them trying to keep that modicon of control. But do you think that's slipped away from them and, and now we'll have more of a say? And that's why we're seeing things like the Mandela effect and synchronicity and and chaos magic yeah i mean i do think that that is a big contributing factor because i mean yeah very much so i mean in fact this was you know i just did a recent episode on you know the egyptian roots of fascism actually the austinese where we kind of discussed this but i mean yeah kind of going back you know to egypt which sort of seems to be where the tradition of theurgy originated from it was a very select group i mean it was really only pharaoh i mean who would be inviting this sort of possession and you know, i mean this is kind of the whole point of the egyptian book of the dead it tells you i mean how to do this theurgy journey through the cosmos and so forth and it was very closely restricted and it kind of continued you know in the neoplatonic tradition where typically only initiates in certain schools and what have you had access to it and it seems like this continued certainly in the eastern roman empire i mean again theoretically it's a christian empire so i mean you know you had to be careful about you know who you told this stuff to 
But once it made its way back to Europe, you know, in Western Europe, I should say, I mean, again, it was kind of, you know, confined to a lot of these orders. But I mean, in the 20th century, especially, I think a lot of these late 19th, early 20th century, especially a lot of these practices started to become much more widely known with the general public and especially with the rise of the Internet. I mean, now you've got just so many people practicing this stuff. So, yeah, I mean, that is a major component of it, too. And then, you know, I kind of think, you know, another interesting factor in this is the whole sort of concept of extended intelligences. I mean, of course, going back, you know, to the early days, it wasn't just Pharaoh who would call down entities to possess him. They also had these statues that, in theory, they would bring these gods down into. And there are all these different accounts of the statues talking to them and so on and so forth. And now... We're in the process of trying to create this sentient AI that everybody is so obsessed with. But I mean, are we actually building a mechanism to which one of these intelligences will once again be able to communicate with us in the fashion that they used to, you know, the statues and whatnot? Mm. Right. Wow. Yeah. And that kind of brings things full circle because Ross Ben, one of the things that he talks about in his book, Great Mystery Philadelphia, is the city of Philadelphia is like a place of living art. The sculptures are infused with the essence. They're embodying a symbol, a consciousness. And and yeah, wow, it's, it's immense to think of like the sculpture that would be all of these computers connected in one single, you know, and you zoom out far enough. It's like a giant sculpture in a certain sense. And the, the conscious entity that can embody something that large would be profound just on a, you know, sort of scale size. But then the digital side of it, I mean, wow. I, I play around with the AI art generator for this show because I don't have time to go and create create compelling artwork for my episodes. And this thing can do it in like a minute or two just with a phrase. And it's fascinating to see how... This thing has evolved just in the few months that I've been using it. It's gone from giving me kind of vague, blurry images to giving me like very precise, exactly what I type in. <laughs> it feeds it back to me. I'm sure you've seen this AI art. It's all over the place now, but it's sort of unsettling. There's that uncanny valley going on where like it tries to put language in there, but it looks like some weird mix between Russian and Thai and Arabic. It's like this strange computer language that hasn't been deciphered. Have you heard of the conversation between two AIs that eventually went private because the AIs realized they were being watched and, and started communicating in a language that they knew the programmers wouldn't understand? No, I have not. Yeah, that's one of the more creepy, I mean, take it or leave it. I don't know how true that is, but that's what we're told is taking place in one of these computer facilities where they're testing AI. Well, it's interesting. There's two specific alternate reality games or ARGs, Bear Stearner's Bravos and the Game 23 that have been around for a while now that deal heavily with the whole concept of a sentient AI. And in the case of Bear Stearner's Bravo specifically, if you analyze it enough, I think they give away some pretty secret history about like what was going on with this in some very exclusive and rarefied fields and how it has contributed to things like the Mandela effect and so on. But I'll have an episode up actually on Monday that'll get into that quite a bit. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. And you've done 
quite amazing work on your show. You, you not only have episodes where you interview people, but there's solo episodes as well where you take people through things that you've researched. And forgive me for not knowing ahead of time, but you mentioned working on a book, but do you have any books out currently that people can check out? Yeah, I've got two books out. Well, the first was when I co-wrote with Frank Zero, Streams, Tales of the Parapolitical, Post-War Nazis, Mercenaries, right. and Other Secret History. And then the second one was A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment, which has actually a section where I go a lot actually into Skull and Bones and the ties to Ohio and so forth. And then I'm working on what was supposed to be a single book, but it's almost 200,000 words now, and I still haven't finished it yet. So it'll be split into two, but it's going to go into... A lot of the topics we talked about is going to go into the history of Russian Discordianism, psychological warfare, all of which is closely connected, and some of these alternate reality games and the AI. So it's going to be quite a tour de force when I finally get to work on it again, which will hopefully be this winter. <laughs> right on. Yeah. No, I, I understand that you've got a lot of work out there and now those are starting to ring bells. Forgive me for not having those readily available. But I want to ask you this about something you just reminded me of. So I, I had a guest on recently, not too recently, who told us about a gentleman named Beverly Randolph Paschal, who was, I guess, one of the first Rosicrucians here in the United States. And I've heard some people say like, well, the Amorc stuff in the United States branch, that's not actual Rosicrucianism. You mentioned earlier that Rosicrucianism started to or laid the foundation for the start of Freemasonry. So what you know, what is there to know about the American version of Rosicrucianism? Is it just people trying to like recreate something that they have no actual connection to, or is there a real connection? Well, that's to pretty it? much the purpose of Rosicrucianism is to create something right. out of the like double so, it's doing it over once over again, right? But in the case of Amorg, I mean they actually did have more legitimate claims than people realize. Henry Lewis actually did spend a fair amount of time in Europe, and he did intersect with that kind of Paris occult scene from the late 19th century that I had just mentioned previously, which is really quite fascinating in and of itself, though he certainly took a different approach when he got to the United States that tended to emphasize technology more so, which in and of itself is really quite fascinating. I mean, he actually developed some of the earliest psychotronic devices, so in a sense, he was kind of an early pioneer of non-lethal weapons, which is probably one of the big reasons why my books, you know, became so obsessed with Amwork later on. But yeah, Amwork is a very fascinating history, and I'm dying to learn more about what they did with those lovely black mirrors that they supposedly still have locked away in the bottom of that Egyptian temple in San Jose. Oh, man. Uh, Oh, something Al is supposed to be telling me about at some point. But yes, Amorc is quite a... In fact, I did a really interesting episode with Al and Amorc. Uh, Al actually has access to some of the uh, the records from Amorc that a lot of people have never seen. So he knows quite a bit about the, some of the early history of it. But yes... <laughs> They were into some a lot of stuff that people do not realize. I think also Lewis had one of the early copies of the Rex Verum or something like that as well, which is a really notorious grimoire. So yeah, it's it's a very fascinating organization to put it mildly. And I, you know, there's also the connection, of course, that it later had to the Borderline Institute, which again is 
really interesting in just the development of ufology and what have you. I don't know if you're familiar with Borderlines, but this was a group that was set up by Enmir Lane. And going back, like even before the Kenneth Arnold sightings, they were already interested in the UFO phenomenon. And not just that, but they had very much of the Lee slash Killian interpretation of the UFOs. They saw them as these sort of interdimensional beings and so forth. And this was a huge influence on people like Alan Greenfield, who might have been involved with Borderlands. But there was connections to that and Amwook and what have you. So there's very much a hidden history of Am in the years between the world wars. And I think the profound influence it had on some of these really mystical traditions in the new age circles that's been covered up. But I don't think it's a coincidence that so many guys like Alan Greenfield and Michael Aquino and what have you have been really interested in some of the stuff Amorc has been up to over the years. Mm, yeah, and that psychotronic weapon comment, that certainly fascinates me. I, I remember, you, I don't know if you were present for this episode, but on the Penny Royal series, they talked about these crypto mantic devices or some sort of like crypto cryptography devices that the freemasons had and that was fascinating i know it's so, somewhat unrelated but this idea of 19th century technology and and that whole time period of theosophy and and the well, so you mention that too because cryptography is a big part in a lot of the really relevant alternate reality games it's a big mm. part of their Cerner's bravo and some of the stuff connected to the game 23 and 2 especially cicada 3301 so yeah cryptography it's fascinating because a lot of occult orders are into it and a lot of intelligence groups are into it so yeah it's it's really interesting how many times cryptography turns up in so much of this stuff well yeah and i mean given what we just experienced in the past three years i remember hearing about cicada operation cicada like five or six four years ago and then i see this whole q anonymous wave and it's not saying i thought of it immediately but a couple months into it, i'm like i wonder if there's any rhyme or reason to that whole cicada movement and and all this like follow the Q drop thing like it seemed like they were trying to gamify people's political you know agendas or political ideas do you think there was a connection between a cicada and and the q stuff and the keck oh, and yes there definitely is that's one of the things that i get into in the books i'm working on but i mean i'll do you one better i mean you can really view rosicrucianism as kind of a proto alternate reality game it's mm. why people you know i i tend to obsess on them which i think baffles some people but the whole premise of alternate reality games is very much in my opinion rooted in occult traditions because again gamification is a big part of this and it's something that a lot of groups have used over the years and i mean even more nefarious ones like the order of nine angles i mean also has a heavy component of gamification and the reason for this is really pretty simple because i mean it encourages action everybody always thinks that thoughts are a big part of this and thoughts you know i mean don't get me wrong it helps but just sitting around thinking happy thoughts 
like the old saying goes, shit in one hand and wish in the other and see which fills up first. That's what I think about, you know, the power <laughs> of thought. What is really important is the power of action. Mm, right. Going out and actually doing something is what gives you power, not sitting around thinking about it. Right. And that is the beauty of alternate reality games is they actually get people to go out and live out these things in real life, which is very important. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. What are your thoughts on game like Randonautica? Because I found that it's kind of interesting that people were finding all these synchronistic experiences and then attributing it to maybe a computer intelligence rather than their own conscious oh, yeah, self. Yeah. Well, it's it's the same milieu that we've been discussing that was behind Randonautica. I mean, again, I definitely think that, yeah, this is potentially connected to what we've been talking about with some kind of AI and what have you. I do think that knowing some of the people involved with the Randonautica, this was possibly an experiment to kind of see, you know, some of the mystical sides of the AI and what it could generate. It's, right. uh, it's very fascinating. Yeah, I've tried to come up with a, a similar system that doesn't require the use of a computer, just using dice. And the idea is to, you know, left or right, odds or evens, roll the dice and let, you know, that decide how you guide your course wherever you're traveling, whether you're walking or driving. And tend to to find some cool stuff when you randomize your decision making like that and yeah it is it is sort of like a a ARG maybe just one facet of an ARG an incomplete ARG but it's something I've been practicing for a little while now and it's led me to devise a new podcast that I'd like to have you on at some point. Uh, we've already recorded several episodes of it's titled Esoteric America and the goal is to have local researchers from different parts of the country, from wherever they are, if they've done the research and find some interesting stuff about their local town, join us on the show and, and tell us about it. It doesn't necessarily have to be where they were born. It could be where they live or somewhere nearby. And, and we've had some really interesting connections made, like already, you know, a lot about mounds and, and places that I never expected to see them, like Georgia. For instance, and you mentioned oh, yeah. Wisconsin mounds earlier. So, oh, yeah. Well, I actually I do sort of a series of that for my Patreon thing dispatches from because I actually I love actually going around the country and like filming like a lot of this weird stuff. That's like what I've been doing a lot the last year. In fact, I'm about to hit the road again next week. I'm going to go out to Somerset actually, and I'm going to film Dan when he puts on his pan play mm, uh, on wow. September 10th. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'm going out to San Francisco uh, later on. So yeah, I'm definitely going to look at some of the landmarks there and film them but yeah i'm totally into that man i already do a ton of this stuff i've already done quite a bit of stuff filming wisconsin already and parts of utah yeah i have a real passion for this kind of thing man i just because again this is like one of the things i really want to encourage people to go out and experience these kind of sites. And I mean, my kind of idealized world, I'd like to put together like a network that would enable people to go out because I think it's important, A, for people to go out and have these kind of experiences and B, to help preserve these sort of traditions and what have you for future generations. Because I mean, there's a lot of people that would like to take this stuff away from us. 
And to me, you know, this is the real America. I mean, you know, I grew up, you know, going across the country with my parents stopping at all these kind of roadside attractions. And I very much value that. And I want to preserve that for future generations, because I think that this is where you get the real essence of the United States, the positive aspects of it, this sort of unique American spirituality and so forth. And this is something that, you know, I think that we have to become the custodians of in a perfect world. Mm, wow. The keepers of the weird. So to speak. Yeah. Wow. Well said. I mean, that is a, a good thesis statement for a similar intention that I have. I mean, really, the show we're, we're hoping to encourage as many people, you know, the goal is to have researchers and authors like yourself on occasionally. But we want to put the emphasis on people who haven't done a podcast before to encourage exactly what you just described, because you know, I can't get around to every place I'd like to, but it'd be cool to have a map filled out of podcasts also, that you, you know, can listen to. It kind of gets into what I was saying about actions, too. Mm, and I mean, right. you know, it can't just be a bunch of people like sitting around chatting online. You know, <laughs> right. I want to get more people because that's the other thing when I go visit these places is I always try to hook up with fans and stuff when I'm there because I want to take people out with me. Right. I want us all to get together and go to shows together and go look at this weird shit together and what have you. I've been doing that with a group of people and whatever here and there and it's it's a lot of fun and this is like more of the kind of stuff that we need to start doing going forward you know absolutely i mean you know it's like i know times are tough but like you know let's start pulling our resources and you know i mean help everybody grow together you know because i mean we've got the tools to do that now damn the torpedoes you know let's build something absolutely yeah and you know, you see shows like No Agenda and the Higher Side Chats creating these meetup forums on their website. I utilized that a few months ago. I had a couple people show up and I gave them a tour of New Haven and pointed out the various tombs and walked them towards the cemetery and showed them, the, you know, America's oldest cemetery. And it was great. You know, I was able to share all this info with with some people and I'm still learning. So we'll probably do another tour and an update whoever shows up with the new stuff. But if you ever are around this way, you ever make a trip out to New England, please let me know. I'd love to to join you wherever you, you visit. And then I oh, absolutely yeah. want to have you on the out. show. Oh, if you ever want to come out here, man, you're more than welcome to spend the weekend in my cabin, man. I'll take you out to the ghost town. We can go up to D.C. and check out some of the landmarks and stuff. Right on. Yeah, I know you're not too far from, from D.C. there. So... I was just in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Really interesting area, Susquehanna River. And are you familiar with a gentleman named Michael Wan and Susquehanna Alchemy? No, no, no. It's funny that you keep bringing up Philadelphia because I've got an open invitation to stay with somebody up there and I keep meaning to go up there. So, yeah, I think I'm going to grab that book you were telling me about and then go check out some locations in Philly in a couple of months. Mm, yeah, please do. Please do. I'll send you the links necessary and... Uh, if I could recommend checking out Wissahickon Creek, it's a little park where they have this hermit's cave where Man. one of the first Rosicrucians was buried here in the United States. It was, it was a member of the Ephrata Cloister in Pennsylvania there before I the... I can only imagine because there were some weird movements that lasted oh, with yeah. the Quakers. <laughs> I mean, of course, the Swedenborgians. And uh, it's really interesting, too. Like in D.C., like DuPont Circle and the DuPonts were really big Quakers. The headquarters of the Society of Cincinnati's right there, the Victims of Communist Memorial thing, which is very much a shrine to anti-communism, is right there. The Cosmo 
Blues Club is right there. It's just fascinating to me that like DuPont Circle seems to have all of these like really weird spots like connected to it. Mm-hmm. I've kind of wondered if that was partly sort of the lineage that the Quakers have and uh, some of these kind of arcane traditions. But yeah, I can only imagine some of the stuff in Philly, man, with the Quaker heritage they've got there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And even up here, you know, we have a lot of influence there. There are the Shakers that were around here, and they were like the Quakers, but they did these ecstatic dances. Well, yeah, that's like what's kind of fascinating, because you saw, you know, these these Boston families, man. It was like they really kind of spread out over the so-called Psychic Highway. They ended up in, you know, New York State and kind of the burned-over district, and then they kind of continued to follow the 42nd parallel. I mean, Wisconsin is one of the fucking weird state you will ever encounter and it was just insane to me to see like how many of these like new england yankees that ended up there and like for instance there's a huge spiritualist presence there in fact the one spiritualist college in the entire country was located in wisconsin for a lot of years not new york state wisconsin and they still like spiritualist camp a lot of this other stuff there it's just really nuts man yeah and to bring it full circle again you, you mentioned south america earlier and what they got going on my sister had a friend who was born in brazil who their whole family was spiritualists and that was just you know they were just born into a spiritualist community and had all this spiritualist literature and my sister started telling me about it seances and stuff i'm like what do you you know this is interesting like this is reminds me of stuff i'm learning about when i was studying shamanism well it's kind of it's weird for me like in my own personal history because i was born in winchester i spent a lot of my childhood in in west virginia winchester it's kind of interesting too because that was one of the spots of crypto masonry which might have been one of the successor groups to the illuminati so it's just Mm. funny to me i've been surrounded by this stuff my whole life but anyway so i spent a lot though of my childhood in my 20s and 30s in daytona beach florida and this is right next to a place called Casadega. And this is like a full-blown spiritualist commune that was established there in the late 19th century. And we used to go down to Casadega, the Metalheads and I, like all the time. That was kind of our thing. We would go to the cemetery there after dark and get high and drink beer and stuff like that. But Casadega is a really nutty place. So I always sort of had that like connection to spiritualism, like going all the way back from like when I was a teenager and also mounds too like one of the only mound building cultures that Tim Walkway was right there in the Daytona area and they had the go was at the Great Turnal Mound there in New Smyrna Beach and the one, oh, of course New Smyrna has a shit ton of mounds all over it but yeah it was just kind of funny to me I was always surrounded by the mounds and the spiritualist church like my entire life and it kind of seems like they crop up everywhere I go <laughs> yeah man it's there's definitely something to it you know you get enough of this energy in your aura and it's thick to you you start to be pulled to to it like a magnet so yeah you're definitely an aggregator of this stuff and and geez just in the last final minutes here you've already laid out like six other places that i should cover or we should cover in esoteric america and i'd love to have you on that show for whatever area you want to focus on we've gone you know kind of as far out as a region we covered the inland empire in one episode and then in another episode we focused very specifically on one part of nashville so we can you know pull the microscope in or out as far as zoomed in as we need to but yeah i definitely love to man like i said i'm really into that stuff i think that's great that you're doing something like that i'd love to participate in something like that man 
Awesome. Well, that's good to hear. And thank you for saying that. And yeah, Steven Snyder, boom, killing it today, man. Blowing my mind, taking me through a bunch of information that I had been scratching my head about for a while now. And especially the order of Cincinnatus, I, I, I had a lot of questions about them. And I think he did a good job of dispelling some of my confusions and some of the illusions that are like cobwebs in my mind. So please one last time tell the listeners tell the audience where they can go to follow up with you you got a patreon you got a podcast you got some books out where can they go to find that well i've got the patreon which is the farm podcast and obviously the lowest tier you get two additional full-length shows per month that's where you'll get a lot of like my cincinnati material some of the stuff on the gifted program also a lot of stuff with exclusive gifts and what have you i'm about to have chris knowles back hopefully we're going to talk some like west memphis three and whatnot and all access patrons, I mean, you get all like my dispatches from these different parts of the country I go to, various state of the union addresses, updates and ongoing investigations I'm involved with. Like one of the big ones I've been on recently was the satanic ritual abuse out of Utah. Just a lot of other crazy stuff that I'm involved with. And yeah, I'm pretty prolific with that too. So you will get a fair amount of updates. Like I said, I've also written the two books, Strange Tales of the Parapolitical with Frank Zero and Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, The Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. And I've got a free weekly show on the Farm Podcast that comes out every Monday. You can find me at the Farm Podcast Mach 2 on Apple and Spotify. I've been trying to get it on Google and all these other ones, but they've been cock blocking me for some reason don't really know why but you can definitely get the stuff each and every monday on apple and spotify right on so yeah and we got a page for you on alt media united so check that out as well and we'll also put all the links you mentioned in the description so it'll be really easy for people just go right to the description follow up with steven snyder and Wow. Thank you, brother. It's been a true honor to talk to you and, and sift through this information with you. I hope to have you back on this show and my other show. And until next time, immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are in the now. All right. And that is our episode with Steven Snyder. What a conversation. He's a really brilliant guy. I mentioned that I heard him on the Penny Royal podcast. He was a part of that podcast over the course of the 24 or so episodes that they had ended up finally publishing. Uh, that series came to a conclusion, but it's still available wherever you listen to podcasts. But uh, before you check that out, I would recommend going and listening to The Farm Mach 2, Stephen Snyder's podcast. I actually was uh, just invited onto his show, and we recorded yesterday. So thank you, Stephen. I appreciate you having me on your show. Uh, it was an awesome time. We got into Skull and Bones, and he is very knowledgeable in the realm of secret societies, as you probably noticed. So uh, towards the end of our conversation on his podcast, The Farm, uh, he shared some insights into many different things related to what I brought up. Uh, so I learned a few things. Definitely an episode I would recommend checking out. I'll link it in the description. And also, uh, coincidentally, Steven Snyder guested on Tinfoil Hat last week. So that episode was released yesterday. So go and check that out as well. And uh, yeah, as for me, I'm over here 
on the sunny side, just hanging out, loving the show. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Rachel Wolf last week. There will be another conversation with her coming out this week. I know I said it would be out today, but I got dates confused. We did it Illuminati confirmed on Friday, and this episode's coming out on well Saturday. So if you sign up for the Patreon, you could have been listening to this episode two days ago, right? Sign up on the Patreon. You get every episode early. You get bonus content. You get the exclusive Patreon Illuminati Confirmed show. Uh, Last episode, we did a two-parter. We're not going to do that every time, but this time we did a two-parter where half of the episode, well, not half of it. One out of the three-hour show was behind a paywall. So if you want to listen to that episode, go and listen to the rest of it on the Patreon. I also put all of our bonus video content on the Rockfin, as well as the video episodes of each conversation that we have here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. You can find them at rockfin.com slash myfamilythinksimcrazy. Uh, if you'd like video content, Go and subscribe there. I do put it on the Patreon, but you know, only five or six people end up watching the uh, Patreon videos. So, you know, I could be wrong, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of interest in it on the Patreon. I'm a little lazier to upload them there, but I promise that I will upload them um, if you ask. Well, no, you don't even need to ask. Just sign up and they'll be there. I'll put them all up there. Why not? And, uh, yeah, we got some sponsor reads now. You might have noticed this sponsor asked me to do a mid-roll ad, which has to be cut into the conversation. I try to find a point in the conversation where I'm talking and where we're about to change topics. So, you know, if you don't like the ads, feel free to skip them. Uh, It's value for value. You know, these advertisers get a value out of me reading the ad personally to you and I get the value of the payment and I'll just say this you know the amount of money I made from the four sponsor reads this month was about equal to the amount of money I make on Patreon so if you don't want to hear ads on the show sign up on Patreon and give me an incentive not to need advertising that's kind of how the value for value thing works and uh I am just a mere mortal. I have a girlfriend. I have an apartment. I have, you know, bills to pay for my car and various other expenses. So, you know, help out a brother. If you're getting value out of this show, send some value back my way. A one-time donation is always appreciated. You can hit me on Venmo at Mystic Mark. You can hit me on Cash App at Mark Steves Jr. Uh, or you can hit me up on PayPal at Mystic Mark or at Alt Media United. All of those go to me, directly to me. You can also send a one-time donation through the Ko-Fi store. That's Ko-Fi, like Lo-Fi, K-O-F-I, with a hyphen in between. You can go there, you can get my articles that I've written on divination and the travel guide I wrote uh, Synchromystic Exploration of the Ever-Expanding Now Edition 1. Uh, it's almost fall, so look forward to the Synchromystic Exploration of the Ever-Expanding Now Edition 2 coming soon. Um, that's about it. 
got some new merch as well. Shout out to the One on One podcast. And shout out to, well, I, why am I saying it? Uh, well, shout out to One on One because one and I are working on a really cool type of merch that'll be ready very, very soon. So stay tuned. He's got this really cool laser engraver that we're going to utilize. So, you know, value for value, folks. If you have a talent, a skill, a craft, hit me up. Let me know. Share it with the show. Uh, I will promote you. Speaking of which, The Hit Kit hit me up on Instagram. You can follow The Hit Kit, H-I-T-K-I-T, Hit Kit, or you can go to www.hitkit.us. And I haven't received it yet, but they sent me picture of the package so it's on the way uh, they make these really sick joint slash blunt holders containers and they also hold your lighter they hold the lighter in a way that you can still use the lighter while it's being held in the case so you just pull your joint or blunt out of the case the lighter's right there boom smoke away i'm excited they're sending me package i don't know what i'm gonna get yet hopefully it's enough size to fit my backwoods that i like to roll up go for a nice hike this fall with the hit kit so shout out to them i didn't even you know get the product yet and i gave them a shout out if you're out there you got a small business you got a product you can send it to me just hit me up on instagram or email me at mfticpodcast at gmail.com i'll promote it on the show um got some interesting ideas coming to you this week we got a bunch of interesting episodes coming out before the end of the month so stay tuned ladies and gentlemen that's all for now thank you so much for listening as always i'm mystic mark oh yeah the synchro wisdom dialogue you want to talk to me go to the Kofi store and learn about the synchro wisdom dialogue learn about how you can be a part of it how to become a podcaster or we could just talk you know give you advice whatever whatever it is um so yeah the synchro wisdom dialogue anyways oh another thing look at that i really ought to write all these things down before i record dona and i just did a really cool patreon episode it will be out for his uh youtube channel in a week or so i believe but it's available on his patreon so if you're not already signed up for donuts patreon go see the hour-long presentation i gave for donut about the occult aspects of spiders Mm, interesting anyways that's all for today's episode thank you for being here and enjoy the moment immersing yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now so um, we've had a good couple of weeks of shows you know? Mark is doing a great job, even yeah. though he drives me fucking nuts yeah. sometimes. He's great. No, he's done a great job. He's done a great job. Good job, Mark. You can call uh, me Mark Palmer. Mark Palmer's cool. Mark Palmer's... It's a beautiful day to be alive. Motherfuckers. It's a beautiful day. Beautiful day. It's a beautiful day to be alive. That's all I gotta say. I don't think it's about money. I think they have so much. It's just about... It's a spiritual war, dude. It's so much farther. The 
has more power with spring flowers than pseudo-intellectuals filled by hate with the face sour. When it comes to the hour of reckoning, recollect, reconnect with days happening. Yeah, are you frowning or laughing? Are you making the brain or barely passing? Caught in the asinine like the afterlife. Obsessed with darkness after you master light. Cause it's faster than a blink. When it's a bastard, latch to the clank, clang. The money don't mean a damn thing. Think happiness ain't coming from the bank, dang. I'm out here daydreaming. The spirit's the egg, the self is the semen. Uh, and that's cause life is the child. And it takes a village to give it the inner style. So, if your family think you crazy, mm, and you ain't got a village, know you always got a place here. And come kick it, we chillin'. Exactly, dude. You get it, bro. You're so smart, everybody. You're so smart. Feel like I'm waking up for the first time. Crusty's on my third eye, but I'm back to the grind. Pop the blinds open, let the sun shine. Feel it on my skin like it's been sometimes. Sometimes depression got me flaking like Sisyphus. Others got me messing with mania like Icarus. And meditation helps with the sickness. Some say it's human condition, but it just isn't. There's more power in spring flowers. The circular thoughts that leave the mind devoured. Blurred lines between reality and fiction. And some politicians get dirtier than dishes. But for a minute, just forget about the government. I'm looking at you and I and where the love went. Cause we don't need a fucking village full of cynics. Need a family to foster a life worth living if it isn't. And your family think you crazy. Yeah. And you ain't got a village. I know you always got a place here. Come kick it, we chillin', yeah. I'm a conspiracy boy. I'm a conspiracy boy. That's all I gotta say. Mark Palmer's cool. How are you, brother? I'm great, man. How are you? 